Lewis, and I'll be having a conversation with Andrea Lawler. Um, and this interview is being recorded jointly for two oral history projects. Uh, the first is the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Program, uh, which is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. Uh, this interview is also being conducted for LGBT Oral Histories of Central Iowa, a project of Grinnell College uh, that documents experiences of LGBT people who've lived in Iowa. Um, it is August 8th, 2019, um, and this is being recorded in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, hi, Andrea. Hey. Hi. Um, thanks so much for your time today. Um, uh, to start, can you just like introduce yourself um, briefly for the recorder, um, and then we can uh, get going talking about your early life. Oh, sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Andrea Lawler. That kind of introduction, or yeah, whatever you want like listeners it. to know about you, situate you. Um, I am a writer and. A I teach at a college, and I lived in New York for some formative years of my early adulthood, and also lived in Iowa City in similar times, so those are maybe relevant to this discussion. Um, and you're from the uh, East Coast originally, right? Yeah, I was born in Philadelphia, and um, really shortly thereafter, like two weeks later, uh, my mom moved um, us back to New Haven, and we uh, lived with her parents, and then when I was about five, we moved to Naugatuck, Connecticut, where we lived with my dad, um, my stepdad, and uh, I grew up in Naugatuck until I was about 18, which is a factory town where most of the factories have closed um, in the 70s. It's, it's a lot of unemployment. Um, it was famous for Uniroyal and Keds. So Uniroyal was a chemical manufacturer uh, complicit in all the terrible uses of chemicals over the years, and now there's a lot of brownfields. Um, and Keds was a kind of a tennis shoe. Right, that's right. So, uh, rubber, rubber and chemicals. Um, and then there was also a, a, a Mounds Almond Joy factory, which was up the road from where I lived, which was a uh, sort of like an actual chocolate factory, like Willy Wonka kind of chocolate factory except that the candy was terrible. And I remember as an elementary school kid going on a field trip to get, to see the chocolate factory and sort of getting free mounds and almond joy and none of us wanted them. <laughs> Wild thing, but Naugatuck is located between New Haven and Waterbury in Connecticut. And um, so I mostly, I lived, um, or my parents still live on a sort of like a house that was on a spit of land between two highways and I went to the public elementary school in my town and then to a Catholic middle school in Waterbury, Catholic all-girls middle school in Waterbury, which was a nightmare. And then I went to, I was a day student at an all-girls boarding school in um, Middlebury, Connecticut, which was a very rich town, about 15-minute drive from where I grew up. So there was a lot of uh, strange sort of like class stuff happening for me in middle school and high school. And it was your, your mom and your stepdad? Yeah, yeah, my dad, but yeah. yeah. My mom married him when I was five. Um, my mom, well, my mom had been a nun for about eight years in the 60s, left the convent. Um, she became a nurse while in the convent. It was a sort of Catholic worker-style convent that, that um, was very progressive, and she actually got involved with anti-Vietnam War activism at that time. And when she left the convent, she stayed in Philly for a few years with other friends who left 
the religious orders around that time. It was right after Vatican II, so many Catholics were having a different relationship to the church. And she was involved with a number of um, anti-war groups at the time, um, primarily as a medical person. She was a she was a hospital nurse in Philly. And then when we moved back to New Haven to be with her family, where she grew up, um, to be to live with my grandparents. She was a hospital nurse in New Haven, and then we lived with another um, single mom and her kid, and then a nurse who didn't have kids. So there were three nurses and two kids in this brownstone. It was a kind of proto-Kate and Alley situation, which was very sweet um, in New Haven before we moved to Naugatuck. Um My mom then moved into working for the Visiting Nurses Association um, in New Haven, and and working organizing with with them and then she became a she then she worked for head start for a number of years um as a nurse and administrator and then she moved into school nursing and she was a she was a school nurse in new haven for most of her career and later then became a school nurse in litchfield connecticut which was just a calm fancy rich town quite far away from where we lived um so she commuted there and my my dad was a school social worker in New Haven for pretty much his whole career. So they were kind of public school workers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Did you like growing up there? I loved New Haven. I did not like growing up in Naugatuck. Naugatuck was not a um, place where I felt like I had much, you know, friends or community. I was as I said, we I, we lived in this house. I'm an only child, we live in a house that was sort of like on a spit of land between two highways. And there were a few other houses on that. You know, you're driving on a highway and you're like, who lives there? We lived there. Um, and the other people who lived in that same sort of like area of land, like now there's like a Walmart pretty close. There's like, there was an adult video store for a while. Like there's, it's just like a stretch of ex-urban land and my parents were like the closest people in age to me like they were the youngest people besides me on that spit of land it was like all elderly people who had sort of not figured out a way to get out of that area um i played a lot by myself in a cemetery that was a sort of the only green space about you know a city block away which is very smiths of me and um i i had some friends like i went to babysitters after school in elementary school and I had friends in that neighborhood. One of my friends I'm, I'm actually still in touch with, and he actually lived in Iowa City at one point too, and now he and his boyfriend live in Tennessee, which is where he, or Louisville, which is where he'd grown up after he left Naugatuck. So I, like I, I mean, we weren't, we weren't out to each other until college, but um, yeah, so I didn't have a great experience in Naugatuck and then going to a Catholic school in another, town was sort of further alienating and then going to a really fancy high school was the nail in the coffin um so i don't really know anybody who lives in the town except my parents and one um good friend of my mom's who she met volunteering at the or actually working at the children's library in town after she'd retired she made this friend who um has now become my friend as well and he's He's like in his maybe mid twenties now, but she became friends with 
him and another friend of his when they were in high school and they would constantly like invite her to go they would invite her to go like flyering at night for a libertarian candidate like you know <laughs> and he became this really cool interesting um person and we're still in touch and that's sweet but i don't know anybody in that town and i don't I know, it's a for me it's not a place i go to aside to from seeing my parents did you have what kinds of things were you into like in early life and perhaps in, in addition to playing in graveyards yeah mostly reading um and I, uh, when I wasn't at a babysitter's after school I mostly got dropped off at the, the bus dropped me off at the library and I'd stay at the public library and just read and library as a babysitter I think is a common story for a lot of people um yeah I was into reading I was into um yeah um I was not into certain things like my dad really wanted me to do ballet and tap dance lessons and that was uh, you know I from a very early age I was like well I'm a boy I don't want to do certain kinds of things um, that I associated well they just weren't of interest to me I was sort of I had a variety of things going on where I was sort of like I don't want to be made to take dance classes but my dad's niece had like a dance school and there was a lot of like dance class stuff we had to go to these recitals every year it was not of interest to me um then later when i got older i was sort of like oh musicals are kind of great but you know and i appreciate dance now but i just didn't like it i bargained um that i would get to i wanted to do like little league or something like that but this was the 70s and actually you know girls were not allowed to do that and I um at least where I was I, I what I managed to get was I got out of the dance lessons it was really torture I have some tortured photographs which I keep around um but I managed to get to do some soccer after that and I was I felt enthusiastic about soccer but I have essentially no athletic ability people often think that I used to be like a jock but I think it's just like you know, it's, it's very generic. Um, I, yeah, so I was a goalie in high school. I've actually been this height since I was 12. And then when I got to high school, people just, and I stayed this height, people were like, oh, you could just, you know, they would just kick the ball over my head. So I, I was a poor goalie, but I was enthusiastic about throwing myself on the ground to impress girls. And that soccer gave me that opportunity. Um, but yeah, I really have, I, I was mostly interested in <laughs> reading and girls, like really my whole life. Mm -hmm. Sort of like my thing. Um, making up stories, uh, playing with Star Wars action figures in this dollhouse I had. I had this thing where I would, um, and I played with those Star Wars action figures really until I, I was like 13 when I finally gave them up. But I would have, like I had this dollhouse, I had this attic, and I would have like Luke Skywalker and Han Solo be agents of the French Resistance and they were like hiding people in the attic. I had a whole uh, dollhouse thing that was really, and I'm an only child, so I did what I now learn is an only child thing, a lot of sitting in my room talking to myself, just playing, things like that. So yeah, um, I was, again, a lot of, the, you know, I have very sort of, I think a kind of standard trans narrative in that I was made to do all these kind of like coded girl things and I didn't like to do them and I had, 
you know, resistance, although I lived in a pretty hierarchical household where there was sort of like very top-down parenting, um, not the kind of parenting I do, but um, very sort of like you're doing it, we're the adults and that's why. Um, and so I was made to do brownies, which is like the, and then they tried to make me do Girl Scouts and I actually, I had like a um, real civil disobedience moment at that point and it had to do entirely with the uniform because the brownies kids were allowed to wear pants and then you move to Girl Scouts and you're supposed to wear a skirt and I was just like over my dead body. Um, and uh, so then at that point, my mom found this thing called 4-H, which was not a huge deal where I was, but was nice because it was all gender. And although it was supposed to be like agricultural, you actually, they actually had a whole thing where you could do arts. So I did a lot of photography, and cooking and drawing and stuff like that. So I was always really arts focused, um, although I didn't, and my fam, my parents were really, you know, they always bought me a lot of books and they were supportive of, of those things, but they were also, they had grown up poor, working class, um, and they were very much like, you need to study, you need to go to school, you need to get a good job, you need to be like a lawyer, like it's nice that you like to write, that means you'll be a lawyer. Like they were very focused on that, and as an only child, they were sort of like, we're investing everything in you, and it was very pressureful in that way, and I think that's again a very standard story, but. Um, yeah, so like another similar thing around that time, this has to do with class and gender. My dad had a lot of ideas about like he would go, he really enjoyed, he's an esthete and he grew up very, very, very poor. Um, his parents were factory workers in the town factory, um, you know, I think when they had work and he had, he lost both of his parents and his older brother um, when he was in his early 20s and he's an older sister who he who took care of him a little bit but he um, he had then became somebody who really wanted the finer things so he took a lot of pleasure in doing things like going to thrift shops or consignment shops and finding like really fancy really girly clothes for me that he wanted me to wear and look like, you know, he, he had a particular thing that he wanted. And my mom, and before she had met him, my mom had been sort of like subscribed to Ms. Magazine, Stories for Free Children, Wear Whatever You Like, Totally a Feminist. And she is a feminist and she is progressive. And, um, and you know, they're also of their time. They were born in the 30s um, and they grew up in pretty, my dad an Italian-American. My mom in working class Irish, her mom came over to be a live-in professor at a, a live-in maid at a Yale professor's house. Like that's, their backgrounds were sort of like, they're the most educated people in their families. They had kind of rocketed to middle class out of their families. Um, who, and then they wanted me to kind of like go the extra mile, which I clearly have done um, in terms of having two Two graduate degrees, crazy. Uh, and so, my dad's thing was he—I think he wanted me to kind of like come correct. He wanted me to look in a certain way and present in a certain way. So he would get me these things like these Florence Eisman dresses. He was like really into labels, and he would like find these fancy dresses that these like rich kids would wear, and he would put me in them, or he would be like these are you know he would buy these clothes for me, and then I would 
be made to wear those to my public elementary school in a poor town. And we were by far like, we were like the rich people in the town. And you know, like really, I will say middle class, like, you know, in a very working class culture. And I was just like, this is a horror show on so many levels. But because these clothes were like fancy, I had play clothes that I had in my bag to wear at the baby, change into at the babysitter. So every morning of elementary school from like kindergarten on, I would get to elementary school, I would go to the bathroom and I would change into my play clothes. So I, the bus was torture, but once I was in my play clothes, I was fine. Like tough skins, I had this little tough skin suit with like a you know, cowboy collar and little pants. I still have that. Um, yeah. Um, to what extent was like uh, being interested in girls and wanting to impress them something that you were sort of like aware of at the time? It was really early, early awareness, and I don't know what you know what people. It was early awareness, like four or five, like you know, before we moved to Naugatuck. I remembered, you know, playmates, my cousin, just sort of being like, "Oh, you know, we're different." She's a little bit younger than me, and I was sort of like, we're very different. Like, I had that, we played together a lot, you know? And that sort of interest in, like, girls, like, just being sort of more interesting on some level. Um, although, I, then when I, you know, from elementary school on, I often had mostly guy, boy friends, little boys, more guys. But, um, you know, so, and most of my friends outside of school, and part of that had to do with being an only child, and my parents, it wasn't play dates, it was the 70s, but they had friends who were only children too, and, or had friends who had kids who were only children too, and so we did a lot of that, like, here you are, just play together type play, and those were largely boys, um, which I, you know, with whom I, I felt like very much the same. Um, and I did grow up in a pretty, you know, it, it was, because it was the 70s, there were certain kinds of freedoms that were maybe, that were, that were like in the larger sort of like mainstream um, that trickled down or trickled into my life. And then it still was pretty, like things were pretty gendered. Boys line up here, girls line up there, that kind of thing. Um, I can't remember what you asked me. I asked about being interested in girls. Oh yeah, that's so funny. And then I went right into gender. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think part of it was like I like girls. I must be a boy. Like I remember around eleven, I had that moment where I was like, well, I guess I'm not turning into a boy spontaneously. I wrote this in the journal. I was like, so I guess I must be a homo. And I I liked that word homo. I didn't like it, but I did like mm -hmm. it. You know, I never used the word lesbian. That was always a sticking point for me, um, which I later came to have some understanding of why. Um, but I think I, I sort of, I did, I had an early connection of gender and sexuality. Um, and maybe part of that was also seeing my dad and one of my dad's best friends who's gay was also very, like he had a lot of sort of like really coded feminine interests and he was, I was very close to him as well. Um, but he was like a florist and an interior decorator for his work and he and my dad were into things like cooking and antiquing and stuff like that. So I was I was around um, men who had 
interests that were coded as, you know, not masculine. And it was great and fine. And my, my dad actually got a lot of praise for, you know, he always cooked in our house. And so my, my parents' friends would always be like, oh, you know, to my mom, they'd be like, oh, you're so lucky, you know, to have a husband who cooks. There were a lot of really traditional heteronormative gender roles happening in my house, but there were these some things where I didn't necessarily have a strict binary breakdown of activities. So like I never, for instance, had a sense of my own masculinity being threatened by not being that interested in sports. I was sort of like, well, not everybody's interested in sports. Mm-hmm. You know? But the interesting girls was, you know, really like crushes I remember in elementary school. And I remember people being like, there was this one kid, Chris, I'm not gonna say his last name, but I still remember his last name. And he was like a tiger beat, you know, pinup at like, you know, age seven. He had that beautiful surfer hair and everybody was just like, oh, Chris, oh, Chris. And I was like, you know, oh, Chris. Meanwhile, I was like, oh, Joni. So, and it was really clear, like every year I'd be like, oh, this year I have a crush on this person, whereas last year I had a crush on that person. And it was really, like, I knew not to talk about it, but it was very strong and clear, and there was no question. I also knew, like, the library was the place I could get information, the card catalog, um, but also that it wasn't something I really, I didn't, you know, talk about that with anybody until I was in high school. So, and then when I was in high school, I was in New Haven. There was a there was actually a, a women's bookstore, which had tons. Of, it had like a gay section, you know, and I would get all the gay books there. And so around thirteen or fourteen, I started having access to more. And actually, even maybe before that, because of Atticus Bookstore in New Haven, the Yale Co-op Bookstore, and this bookstore, I think it was called like Golden Thread or something. And the three of them, I remember, like I I got this book, Young, Gay, and Proud, which was about like gay youth culture in Britain. Um, and it was for youth, and I think I got it. I like shoplifted it from the Yale Co-op bookstore when I was maybe twelve. Um, around that time, I stumbled on a, a copy of uh, Edmund White's *A Boy's Own Story* at the public library in Waterbury, which I read without checking out. One time, around twelve too, I was babysitting for some family friends, and the kid had gone to sleep, and I was just, you know, and now as somebody who hires babysitters, this troubles me, but I was scouring their shelves and opening drawers and everything, and I found a copy of The Joy of Gay Sex, again by Edmund White, my entry into gayness. Um, And I was sort of like, oh my God, somehow this speaks to me. I'm not exactly sure why. You know, I did a lot of shoplifting of gay things, but once I found these bookstores and once I was able to kind of get myself to a bookstore and hide things in my backpack, started buying a lot of gay books. and then in high school, I came out to some people when I was like 14 or 15. Um, there was one person who was sort of out uh, in my high school, and it did not go well for her. And that was when you were in Middlebury? That was when I was in this high school in Middlebury, Connecticut, yep. And, um, was it, I'm sorry, was it all girls? Yeah, it was all girls. So that also was weird, but on another level, it gave me a lot of freedom. Um, I hadn't, it hadn't been my choice. It was sort of, you know, in many ways uh, chosen for me. Um, and I was on this scholarship and it was really stressful because it was expensive, but there was a scholarship and all the day students were on scholarship and all the boarding students were largely not. Um, 
And so there was a lot of, like, class was the primary axis of difference in that experience for me, but also, like, coming into sexuality and coming into sort of a sense of gender stuff. Like, I was always in middle school and high school, if there was ever a time to dress up, I was always dressing up in a, you know, costume that allowed me to have, like, a painted-on mustache or something. Like, it was all that kind of thing. And so I didn't really, I was certainly on some level trying to have a girlfriend in high school, but that was not happening for me, even though it clearly was happening for others. And it was happening for people who were sort of like, I'm not gay, I'm just sleeping with my roommate. It's like, great, thanks. Uh, were you like, and uh, so books were, were a major sort yeah, of like, books or, were the, as it often is. Yeah. yeah. Um, were you aware, like in the seventies and eighties, of the sort of like beyond books, the sort of LGBT world at large um, going on around you in New Haven? Mm-hmm. So another thing that would happen is sometimes, like if oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, Matt, was Atticus the name of the women's? It was a bookstore. Book no, 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 it wasn't the women's bookstore. The women's bookstore. Women's bookstore. I think was called Gold Thread. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. It's not still there. It was on, um, I think it was on State Street, and it's possible to find that out. Uh, Atticus is still there. It's on Chapel Street, and it's a famous and wonderful independent bookstore. The Yale Co-op Bookstore um, was a couple blocks away from Atticus, and part of Yale. It's now been, you know, eaten up by Barnes and Noble or something. It's horrible, but at the time, it was really a huge, amazing resource. And my parents would often take me to New Haven and like basically drop me off for the day like in middle school and high school if they had work and I didn't have school where our schedules were different um or if they had meetings or something and they would just you know be like okay just hang out at bookstores all day and that would be amazing for me because I would you know a I would do like a shoplifting rampage of downtown New Haven but b because I was sort of free to just sit around and read gay books all day which I did um and and there weren't so many at that time that you couldn't read them all. I mostly did. Um, and but it was, so were you um, like aware of like sort of that, like LGBT life? And oh yeah. So in in New Haven, I was aware that the college students there were lots of queer college students. That was obvious to me. Um, once I got to sort of in middle school I had a sense of it by the time I got to high school I was like okay I've now been reading about this stuff for a while so I'm I can see the signs um I was involved in high school I got involved in stuff like guys you know um nuclear disarmament organizing and I remember I was maybe a sophomore in high school maybe it was like 1987 I went to a a student disarmament conference at Yale and it was overnight and of course you know you can imagine that was great I a I got like my first like pink triangle button they had some act up stuff that's for the first time I learned about act up um but I also found myself I don't remember exactly how I did it but I got myself to a gay Yale party in a dorm and that would have been like 87 maybe 88 Uh because it could have been in the winter it was in the winter probably was 88 and um yeah no i mean and i remember really nice like must have been like a first year college maybe second year college he seemed much older but a really nice gay guy basically being like you know you are wasted buddy and i'm gonna get you home safe but like really sweet you know and just like here's it wasn't i was just like wasted on a mass but i was also like okay so you got to get to college and that's where the gays are and that's where you can just like have your like i a lot of my childhood was sort of like just get through to this till you can get to college or a city which i did 
because that was the plan, and I succeeded. Oh, so you're sort of in a holding pattern until... Yeah, I mean, and there were gay people in my life in terms of my parents' friend Jean, who um, was about 10 years younger than them, and he was, I came out to him in high school, and and he was really, like, lovely and supportive and not, um, we had our own relationship in which I was confident that he wasn't sharing things with my parents, um, so I had, like, a kind, trusted gay adult in my life. Um, and there were other people who were sort of like, I knew we're gay, but nobody would talk about it. Uh, but it wasn't, I didn't, my, the extended family was pretty, um, pretty sort of like ambiently homophobic, but my parents were, um, more, when they found out I was queer, they were sort of more in the, you know, um, I just don't want you to have a hard life vein of things, which at the time I was like enraged by. And now I'm sort of like as a parent, I'm like, well, I feel you. Um, <laughs> nobody wants their kid to have a hard life. So they've, you know, we had some struggles around the time I was in college and coming out um, as queer. Uh, but oh, by by my late 20s, our relationship was, you know, really getting much better. And they're wonderful and supportive now. And they're really, you know, I told them not to read my book, and they say that they haven't. So, uh, <laughs> which is just for their own protection. But I, um, they've been actually they've rolled with everything around gender. Around, I mean, they're they're really happy. Like they love my partner, and they're sort of like my mom is sort of like the daughter I never had. So that's really nice for me, actually. Um, what was it like when you uh, fled to New York City? Well, it was great to be in New York, but I, um, for a variety of reasons, ended up at Fordham, which was not a great place to be. I was one of the only out queer people. There were like three of us out undergrads, you know, and, and that's a school that's like 30,000 people. It was the Bronx, Rose Hill. Um, you know, I had, we knew some gay Jesuits who would sometimes like take us out to dinner in the village and they were very kind, but they weren't out. Um, and I, um, we started a, a group called Fordham Lesbian and Gays, which is very flag, which was very of the of the time in terms of the language. Uh, so this was around eighty nine to ninety. Uh, we had to get all our straight friends to sign the petition as members because we couldn't find ten out people on campus. So that was hard. You know, we couldn't. I knew I had a. Faculty. I had a professor who was, who was queer, and and I think she was more out than others. But and I'm still in touch with her, and she was wonderful and in many ways life changing. Um, but it was a place where you know my friends and I routinely got death threats. You know, like pinned to our doors, our dorm room doors. Um, we got chased. It was really, you know, it was a kind of a. Um, fortress of a campus and what was scary was inside the campus walls um, and it was a place where before our group got approved which it finally did another student group was approved called preserving a Catholic tradition which was a student group composed of um, really really violently homophobic students who were also involved in other work 
uh, like the Lambs of Christ and Operation Rescue stuff. So I ended up actually being on the other side of the the lines from them and doing stuff like I got I started getting involved in things um, in the city, like act up to some extent, Queer Nation, largely Dyke Action Machine, WHAM, which is Women's Health Action Mobilization, so doing like clinic defense, stuff like that, uh, Pink Panthers, Pink Panther Patrol. Um, and of those Queer Nation, Pink Panther Patrol, Dyke Action Machine were like the things I was most involved in. And like WHAM and ACT UP were things I was sort of like, I'm here, like rank and file, like I'll come out, I'll do a thing, but I wasn't like, you know, I was a teenager. Um, but getting involved with that kind of activism was helpful because, A, it was, you know, a way to sort of see a different kind of way to be queer and to be political. And a lot of, you know, the things I'd, I'd seen in, you know, other kinds of organizing up until that point were, were being done in such amazing ways in those groups. And B, it was a real, like, comforting alternative to what was happening on campus. And I dropped out of Fordham. Mm -hmm. We got the group approved, and I dropped out. And it just it wasn't a good situation for me. Was there a particular reason why you ended up at Fordham? Yeah, because I had, you know, not... <laughs> I was not a particularly good student in high school. And um, I, I mean, I was an okay student, um, but I was uneven. And I'd been suspended at some point in high school. Like, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a great candidate for the kinds of schools in New York City that um, I might have really had a good time at. And I, my, I, I knew that I couldn't apply to any place that wouldn't give significant financial aid. So I didn't apply to NYU or Sarah Lawrence um, or the new school because they didn't have financial aid to speak of. I mean, they had some, but it wasn't significant. I knew I would never get into Barnard or Columbia. Um, I didn't understand about Hunter. I, like looking back, if I thought about it, I would have loved to have gone to someplace like Pratt, but it didn't occur to me that I could go to art school. So like, it was sort of like, how do I get to New York? And Fordham somehow seemed like the most possible. And also having grown up in sort of like a Catholic world, even though I had never been involved or interested, but it had been sort of like part of, I understood that the Jesuits were considered more progressive than maybe the people who ran the other Catholic schools that I could probably have gotten into right. in New York. So that, it was really just, you know, um, opportunistic. You just wanted to be in New York. I just wanted to be in New York, and that was the only way I could figure out to do it. And then when I dropped out, I was like, I, I realized, um, I dropped out, I got a job working as a receptionist in the Putumayo warehouse in Soho. Putumayo is like a, it was like a clothing manufacturer and they've gone into like world music, but I answered phones in this warehouse and it was great. You know, it was fantastic. I just really, um, I went out every night. I did a lot of, you know, I went to meetings, I went to clubs, I had a whole life and then I just had this day job and I paid my rent and it was great. Um, but I realized in the course of that, working full time, you know, in a job that was what I could get at that point, at like 19, that I, um, I wasn't going to be able to pay rent, you know, eat and pay for college in New York, like if I tried to go to Hunter, um, even within state. I had like worked it out and I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And at that point I was not in great touch with my parents. 
So I started researching places that would have a good English department that would be like queer friendly and that I could afford. And I came up with Iowa, which turned out to be totally true. I didn't tell myself, I didn't let myself think that I wanted to go there because of the workshop and the presence of the creative writing there. Like I was sort of like, oh, it has a good English department. I didn't, I wasn't writing and I wasn't sort of, I didn't really let myself think of myself as a writer. Um, but that was, of course, a big piece of it. So then I went to Iowa City. I do want to hear more about Iowa, um, but I'm curious about um, your life in New York City before uh, you left. Um, do, it, do you remember like the first time you went to a gay bar? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a good question. The first time I went to a gay bar, not a gay night, like a gay bar. Oh, Maybe the first time I went... I wonder... I think it might have been with that friend of mine who was out in high school. And she was a year behind me. She was my age, but she had, she was a year behind me. And so she was still in high school. She came up to visit me maybe the first semester of college. And it must have been, it might have, no, maybe. A memorable time was going with her to what um, I believe was called the Duchess Two. Yeah. Um, which was in the West Village. Uh, I I went, I, I became pretty quickly, uh, you know, I had a fake ID and I became pretty quickly um, a regular at places like Crazy Nannies in the West Village, that was a big one. Uh, Duchess too, I'm pretty sure closed not long after that. Um, Crazy Nannies, when did the, the Click Club, must have been around then, the Click Club, um, the Click Club was just a one night, it was like Fridays, um, and then we would also, I had this, so when I dropped out, my friend Stuart dropped out too, I won't say his last name, I guess that'll be how I do it, so we had an apartment together, we, <laughs> Oh God, we sublet a squat. We didn't know what we were doing on Clinton Street in the East Village. Some guy basically conned us into subletting this place he was squatting. It was such a disaster, but it was great. It was a basement. It was so filthy, um, but we were delighted. And we would kind of switch it up going to bars together. Um, there was this place called Wonder Bar. I don't know if it's still around, and it was close to where we uh, lived. But this was... That was so that was more like in 1990 91 92 but in 89 like when i first got to the city probably like duchess crazy nannies um there were like some gay like some sort of informal gay nights at these bars in the bronx and i would go to those with like my gay friends from fordham queer friends whatever um i went to a lot of men's bars just because i mostly hung out with gay men um, but I would go wherever, really. And what was your sort of, like, uh, I mean, how would you, what was your sort of, like, scene? Like, what was it like being queer? And well, once I got really more involved with Queer Nation stuff, that was sort of the, like, I would go to ACT UP meetings, but it was, and Queer Nation, they were really, it was hard to distinguish them at the time. And I was very much, like, it wasn't even rank and file. It was just sort of, like, person who was showing up 
like what can I you know I'll go wheat pasting with people or whatever and I was really like a Stuart and I both had this sort of quality of being like pets you know like we were teenagers um I mean I was 20 when I left the city so it was really I was really like I remember when I turned 22 I was like no one will ever think I'm cute again so old um very like gay feeling I uh, I I think you know we were treated as some well, of mascots in a way um but very much included and appreciated for being there but we weren't like I wasn't somebody who was like necessarily totally I, there are many young organizers who are really doing the work and who are really like they're really taking control I was not I was sort of like, what's going on? Who's cute? What can I do? Like, but also, can I do it with somebody cute? Um, but it was most of my social life was constellated around the people I knew from Queer Nation, from ACT UP. And, and Stuart and I both did Pink Panther Patrol for quite a while. And that was really cool because um, we were with people we knew from other, you know, from that. That was our scene. Our scene was like, we're going to the center and there's going to be a meeting and we'll go to it and then we'll do some stuff. Like, that was just the scene. Um, but the, the Pink Panthers, I was, you know, we would patrol weekend nights. We had these little shirts. I still have mine. Okay, um, can you explain quite briefly? Like, what the sure. So the Pink Panther Patrol was a, a group of queer people in, in New York in that time, the late 80s, early 90s, that would um, walk in, we would sort of like have a pack and we would walk around in the neighborhoods in which queer people were getting bashed there was a lot of a lot of um you know violence against people in around gay bars um around the meatpacking district the piers so we had these different routes and we would patrol the routes and you know we had our whistles and self-defense training and and our presence was really just meant to you know sort of hopefully intimidate people out of bashing um and provide support for people if people were you know needed to be escorted somewhere or walked out if they were too if they were wasted and they needed to to be walked to the subway or whatever it was like we did all that kind of thing that people community patrols do and it was um yeah, it was a it was a great group of people, and it felt like something really concrete to do. Um, aside from a lot of the other activism I'd been doing, was more on the level of, of symbol. Um, lots of like a lot of what Queer Nation, what we were doing was was to do with like you know we would have a kiss in at a bar. A lot of it had to do with representation, um, and and you know putting up posters and like day touring gap ads and stuff like that so it was it was uh it was a different register and but it, many of the same people like that was around the time I met Sarah Schulman for instance in those circles and have stayed in touch with her I mean she's you know really she's she was really a key member of those things but she was somebody who was also like really kind to um younger people and that was you know there were the thing I remember about that time is how kind the older people were to us. Yeah. Do you have? Do you, are there any uh, particularly memorable um, patrols? 
Not really, no. It kind of all blends how, into one. How big, like, how big a group would you guys, like, patrol in, usually? I feel like it was probably, I, this is so long ago, I don't really remember, but I think it was probably, like, seven or eight people, mm-hmm. you know, if I remember. Um, and... Yeah, it eventually, I think there was a lawsuit about the name. There was some sort of, like, cease and desist, you know, from, like, MGM or whoever. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is so annoying and, and stupid. Um, but it was going when I left. I left this, when I left the city, um, all of those things were still sort of in, they were sort of still happening. Um I'm still in touch with a lot of those people. Yeah. And you mentioned that you were pretty involved in um, uh, Dyke Action Machine. And yeah, that was a much smaller group. And uh, some of the people who were really involved... So a lot of those people were um, artists and graphic designers and worked in... Um, you know, like they had... They were people in their 20s and 30s who had like... They were out of college or, you know, they'd, they were... Um, working in creative professions and it was really interesting to be mostly hanging out with with or like some of them were maybe graduate students um and it that was a pretty small group like the the kind of core group was more in the sort of like 10 or 15 people range it later became a project of uh carrie and sue sue schaefer schaffner and oh god i lost carrie's last name carrie these two photographers who had done a lot of the the um, the design work. They weren't the only people doing the design work, but they had sort of led it. And then that project kind of, if you if you Google it now, you will see it as their project. But it had been a working group of coordination, and that was in in that iteration of it. I was sort of involved with those with those people. And what kind of what did you do? I, I mean, I, I really, I like, we pasted stuff, I flyered, I went to demos, like, I didn't, I was never somebody who was at the center of anything, I was always, you know, just a person who was just there, but not organizing, if that makes sense. It really was very rank and file. Mm-hmm. What was it that, do you remember what it was that kind of draw you to activism? Because you mentioned, like, um, like going to disarmament, like, thing, yeah. like in Connecticut, and, and then sort of falling into Queen Nation and ACT UP and WHAM and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean... on campus, you were... Yeah, I think part of it was um, being in those scenes and those groups was a way to, to be with people. It was a way to meet queer people, which was, like, my prime directive. Um, and it also... I mean, really, I will say, like, all of my interest in activism always began with, like, I'm going to meet cute girls. I'm not proud of it, but it's just true. And it also was coming out of, like, a parallel sense of there's injustice. I am, <laughs> I am, you know, against injustice. And, and so... The queer activism, so the the disarmament stuff, I think, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, like, when you're kind of, like, growing up and, and just sort of, like, really, like, a kid, um, and you're realizing that that humans have the capacity to blow up the planet, you're sort of like, wait, what? Like, it is actually, once you sort of realize that, um, 
it's sort of hard to everything is destabilized it's hard to trust anybody it's hard to sort of like understand why adults are just going about their regular lives you're sort of like what the fuck you guys no like this is not we can't um we can't like let this stand so i think there was a sort of a sense of of crisis but then at the same time you're like oh god and i have a you know a zit and i'm in class with this girl i like like it's sort of like you're holding both of these things like the world is about to end and we have to stop it and then also regular life goes on so i think like the because nuclear war is the, i mean it's literally annihilation and how do you how do you hold annihilation with life continuing like the threat of annihilation um so i think that sort of culturally i was primed for that and then when i came into queer life it was at the time where um queer sex was starting to become associated with annihilation and so i i think that those that you know, it was certainly not an articulated or, or conscious connection, but it seemed like a very clear trajectory in a way. Um, and also like that, like disarmament stuff was like, that was like the activism that was available where I was, you know, and I think it just happened to be what, there, I did Amnesty International too, but I was a little bit like, all right, I'm writing a letter on this, you know, airmail paper and that's cool, but really, this isn't, this isn't, we gotta go and like, protest these trident subs and gone you know like this is really a different order of magnitude in terms of like what i'm my body's you know on the line and so i really i i think having throughout the 80s like the early 80s having a sense of of aids primarily because of um our family friend gene you know i remember it must have been in the early 80s i remember being in the car with him and my mom and was a nurse as I said and so and Jean was sort of saying like well you know there's this thing this grid thing and like you know what do you think about it to my mom because my mom was the person everybody would call for free medical advice that's what nurses get and doctors but um so Jean would always be just sort of like you know what do you what do you make of this or I saw this article or whatever and so it was ambient knowledge for me as a child and then as I got into high school I was you know I was getting the village voice when I could in New Haven um, I was reading whatever gay periodicals I could get to. Um, I got a post office box in high school in the town I went to high school in, and I got gay things sent to me there, um, which was really, when I look back, I think I was quite intrepid. Um, <laughs> but I, um, and that also led to kind of like zine, zine life later. But I think that um, what was what was really appealing about the activism I was around and those scenes were that people were working together on multiple fronts um, and, and like there was a lot of people who were really different from each other having this kind of solidarity because it's like annihilation. It's like nuclear disarmament, it's like, it does, like nothing else matters at that point. It's just we have to stop this thing, right? And so every people have to work together across difference to stop a thing. And I think you know that's what it felt like a lot of the organizing like act up felt like the umbrella for everything else that was going on and people had been coming from anti-war organizing from nuclear disarmament stuff they've been coming from from women's health like tons of different kinds of um you know radical leftist organizing traditions and bringing that 
information and that knowledge and those tactics and strategies to ACT UP. So it was really, it also felt like this, this sort of, I mean, it was coalitions, coalitional politics, but it felt like this um, also kind of just like a really intense, really large seminar on on radical possibility and, and, and like radical movements. Because you'd be talking to somebody and then you'd find out that they, you know, had like, you know, been arrested with Daniel Berrigan or something. Like you'd find out all this stuff about the older people and they were really, they, the older people were really generous and they knew so much, you know, and they were, um, they took young people seriously. You know, I didn't take myself that seriously, but they, they took us seriously. And people, there was a lot of infighting. That's where I learned the word infighting. Um, there was a lot of, you know, um, many people I, I obviously did not, feel seen or weren't seen or heard. Um, but that's where I even learned that it was possible for lots of different people to want to be seen and heard mm -hmm. in a group that was organizing against something that was affecting everybody, even if not everybody realized it. So I think that was what was exciting. It was like, oh, these people are living in reality. And really, personally, it also was a time at that late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of in like, you know, lesbian and gay circles, there was a lot of sort of like, lesbians are here, gay men are here, there's nothing else, you know, like bisexual, trans, nothing was being discussed, but queer nation was like queer. And I was like, oh, okay, so I don't have to take a side. And that was really helpful to me to just be like, I identify as queer. And that can include everything, it can include gender, it can include sexuality. I don't have to get, you know, I don't have to have a word that I don't it doesn't resonate for me for whatever reason. Um, and it was like punk, you know, it was exciting in that way. It was like, fuck you. Um, but I also liked that the, that most of the organizing within those groups wasn't divided by gender, but Dyke Action Machine was, and it was, you know, it was people who identified as dykes. I sort of like was provisionally okay with identifying as a dyke which I saw as a sort of, I saw as another word for butch, even though it wasn't being used that way, but I was kind of into that. I could kind of like get my head around that. I could accept it as sort of like, okay. Um, but it was really, it was just because that's where there were like, and there were the younger, like there were like college age people that I could and did date. So that, it was like sort of again, opportunistic. Um, but I liked a lot of that organizing being, you know, not separatist. Mm -hmm. And that was really, because I was sort of like constantly being interpolated into this sort of lesbian space or sort of like invited to these things. And I'd be like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to meet or whatever. You know, I'm going to go to the Eagle and get called fish all night, but it's better than this. So I think that there was, there was a gender piece in that that felt, you know, I didn't, again, didn't articulate at the time, but was like later I can look back and say like, that was part of what attracted to me attracted me to that world was a more of a sense of expansiveness and more of a sense of possibility and um, just also people talking about language and mm -hmm. you know and that sensibility comes through in your novel pretty strongly that sort of moment of like openness and sort of contact across difference yeah and under sort of the ages of queer um, did a so like it, your a social world was also like mixed in the same way. Yeah, my social world was like, um, 
yeah, at that moment, at that time, like in that sort of like, when I was in New York in that sort of like 89 and 92 period, my social life was like 5% Fordham College undergrads and like 95% like queer activists. Um, and of those queer activists, it was really super mixed in terms of like, you know, men, women, what we now would call cis queer people, trans queer people, like it was people who were anybody, you know, it, it was not hugely racially diverse. It was still skewed white, my social group, not all of that, but um, more racially diverse than any other social group I was part of. Um, economically pretty, pretty wide ranging, like there were definitely an act up, like you definitely knew like there were the, these rich people who were sort of like using their privilege and it was amazing but you also could kind of smell it off right and then there were just like really like poor working class people who were sort of like saying like these are my issues and they're really different and it was really interesting to be not only seeing that in this sort of like political sphere but also then just like going out to the bar after you know which was a lot of what we were doing was going out after um or dating or hooking up or whatever and so I really met a huge wide range of, of people at that time and again many of them I'm still in touch with which is exciting and like weirdly thanks to the internet um, and then eventually um, you decided to finish uh, yeah undergrad. so I went to Iowa and um, and then I at Iowa I was there for four years doing a sort of like on again off again like I would go for a semester or work a semester I got I went for a semester and um, then I dropped out and got, and lived and worked and got in-state tuition, which made my life a lot easier. Um, I was bartending at this queer bar, the 620 Club, which was also cool because it was a huge nightclub and it was like mixed, which was very Midwestern. What is the bar that's there now? It's called like Studio 13 or something. Yeah, that, that's, that's different. Because I know it's been like there for old. a while, but it so, used to have different names. Right? Yeah, the 620 was in a warehouse. Uh, it was like 620 North Lynn Street. Okay. You know where the post office is? past that but uh, like two streets down there's like a come and go on the corner um, uh, so what did, what did you think of um, queer Iowa City after coming from New York oddly enough it was a fantastic and exciting spot to be in I was in some ways I was also um, getting to a point where I was feeling a little overwhelmed by everything I didn't know I remember um, this guy, Matt, Matt Foreman, he was like head of AVP at the time, and I think he's gone on to be some other director of things now, but him and his boyfriend, I remember they had some like big party for them at Twin Donut right before I left, and he was like, oh, you're going to Iowa. Oh, that's really interesting. You're gonna go to college, that's great. Like, you need to know your history. And I was like, thanks, Matt. Like, it really stuck with me. I was sort of like, okay, like I got the blessing, you know? Um, and then I really did not, I was not involved in activism for a long time afterwards. I think I was in many ways, like in Iowa, I was I was sort of like working and studying and trying to figure out was I gonna go to grad school or what was I gonna do? Um, and after that, I mean, it really, after that initial moment of, of really intense involvement in, in organizing, I haven't really been particularly active person I sort of feel like the you know like the reserve core 
So, like, during the Gulf War, I was doing stuff, but it was sort of, like, in that reserve corps way. Like, okay, there's a meeting. This is what we do when these things happen. We go to the meetings. We go to demos. We do these things. And and so that's, yeah, I think it's sort of, I think I, I realized ultimately that I don't necessarily have the the head for for some of that organizing. I, I've often wanted to be more involved. I mean, my partner and I, over the last few years, she's she made a um, documentary about Judy Berry, who was an Earth First organizer um, in Northern California. Um, really amazing person. Um, and and through the course of, of my partner making that documentary, she became, this was now at this point, this was like 15 years ago, she got really um, interested in the environmentalist movement, which it, up until that point, I think, you know, both of us and many people I know had thought of as like, oh, that's just like bougie, like white men are interested in that, you know? And, and then it was because of Judy Berry, who was this labor organizer who became interested in, in working with timber workers and environmentalists and was bringing these movements together before she was car bombed and ultimately died. Um, she, she sort of like, I think, was the person who, for both of us, well, for my partner and then later for me, through her, um, made us realize like global climate change was something that was like the place where if we were going to be putting our energies would be a place to put our energies in the same way. And I think both of us have, well, I haven't really done that. I mean, you know, this is just the truth is I haven't really been an activist in my, in most of my adult life. Um, but I, I think like global climate change and immigration stuff are the places that make sense to me. I, I, there were a lot of things that were coming up around like LGBT activism has never been of much interest to me since that early time. I'm grateful for the work that people have done. But for instance, marriage equality or stuff to do with various religious organizations is not of interest to me. The prison abolition work that many of my friends have been involved with is, I think, is amazing and something also I, I feel like is the LGBT issue, you know, like those kinds of issues, prison abolition, poverty, stuff like that. Those are things to, to work on. But I have found that I just, I go to a meeting, I get excited, and then I can't, I can't, I, it's like this early burnout or something is still there, and it gets triggered, and I don't continue, but I, I think probably that's going to have to change at some point. Well, becoming a parent also, I think, is, is something where you're like, oh my god, right, we have to actually do more things than we're doing, and, and sort of start putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, what did you spend most of your time doing when you were in Iowa City? Drinking and hanging out with girls and studying. I um, I was at that point. I thought I would go to graduate school and do you know like some kind of queer studies degree. I, Kevin Coppelson was my my teacher and mentor. Um, and I had amazing professors at Iowa. Not only Kevin, but Doris Witt and. Um, it's so many, actually too many to mention, but um, really amazing professors who not only did you know queer theory or queer studies, um, but also um, were really like wonderful Marxist academics, Marxist literary critics. Um, I had a I had a zine for a while that was a fanzine for Judith Butler. Um, is that the Judy? Yeah, it's called, it was called Judy. So I knew, 
Yeah, uh, I that, that was yours. <laughs> that was my contribution to Iowa City culture. Um, I think I'm going to teach that next year. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, it, I don't know that it holds up. Um, but you know, that was it was a different time. You made it, you it was made before it in the Iowa City internet. Too. Yeah, that was in Iowa City. Um, actually, this guy Kembro McLeod wrote a thing about the about Zephyr coffees recently. Do you know Zephyr? Yeah. Um, yeah. So he wrote an appreciation because it was closing, and he talked a little bit about Judy in it. Uh, it's on. It's like QZAP has it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you, yeah. Um, but so I was. I think Judy is a good example of my um, sort of academic mindset, like frivolous, <laughs> queer, like interested but not that interested. Like I turn out really not to be a theorist, and I was excited about queer theory, and and like Kevin was one of the people who got me excited, and and other professors I had, I was trying to figure things out, and I had questions, and I thought queer theory, and um, you know feminist film, film theory, I thought that those were the places I was going to get the answers I needed about life. And um, those, I didn't necessarily get the answers I needed, but it was, I, I think I, I was in many ways shaped by the reading and the thinking I was doing at that time, even to the, to the extent that I even understood it, you know. But being turned on to like Foucault was huge for me. Um, and I think, you know, again, like with Butler, like I, maybe I understand like 5% of what I read, but it was still formative um, and helped me understand more things about my my life. I, I think there was a point where I was trying to, I was often trying to read things on my own and like not in the context of a class, but then going to the professors and trying to talk about the things I was reading. And I, I remember like I was, I think what happened ultimately for me was that I kind of crashed, crashed on the, on the um, rocky, uh, shore of Derrida and I was like life is meaningless nothing has any meaning I'm done like sort of I, I think I lost faith in the possibility of finding answers in, in critical theory around that time I mean I was still a, at that point my social scene and social life was largely graduate students and people from the bar um, some crossover there so I met a lot of people from the workshop because I was a bartender at the queer bar. Um, and some of the people I was friends with are people who you would know, like Alex Chi was um, very, he was really close to uh, one of my girlfriends at the time and, and later friend and I've known him for years and it was very sweet like to watch his career, you know, because he was just like a guy in the workshop. Um, and uh, Reginald Shepard who, I was very close to him. We had a falling out as many people did but he's a beautiful poet who he died maybe five years ago I can't I don't know how long ago it was it seems like a long time ago um but we hadn't been in touch for a long time but he was a good very good close friend of mine so there were queer writers that I knew through the workshop but there weren't very many people who were out and queer at the time but a lot of people I um connected with I'm still in touch with like workshop people um and then a lot of the other people were graduate students in other uh, in other programs. Because I was, at that point, a non-traditional age college student, so my peers were graduate students. Mm -hmm. um, and the people I knew at the bar. Uh, so yeah, I can't remember where else we were. I gotta ask you about queer theory or something. Um, I wanna um, make sure we have time to talk about writing and um, later life and stuff. Um, 
I haven't asked you specifically about sex or dating either in New York or um, Iowa City, but there's any, any like relations or entanglements that stand out that you want to comment on. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, how shall I say this? Uh, yeah, that was a time where I was interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, it was a time of going wide rather than deep. Um, and did you, I, I know that um, your novel was something that you worked on for year, a long time yeah. before it got published. Was that something that was like writing, I know you had not like been in school for writing or anything at that point yet, but like when you were in Iowa City, was that something you were working on? Oh like, no, just, no, like, no, no, that, capacity, I didn't even instance. start that. So one of the things that happened was when I made that zine, Judy, I'd been in, like I'd, I'd been somebody who'd been writing away for zines since really, since really pretty early days of zines, like end of high school, beginning of college, I was writing away for all these Canadian zines like JD's and Bimbox and like all that, like uh, GB Jones and, and Johnny and Oxyman, all those guys, Rex. And I got really involved with um, writing away for things like from Fact Sheet 5 and Larry Bob Roberts' Holy Tick Clamp scene, which was the queer zine. Queer zine explosion, he had a column in Fact Sheet 5 and then it became Holly Tick Clamp's review zine of queer zines. So, and I would go to Chicago and go to homo core stuff, and I was sort of like interested in that world. And so Judy was the the moment where I was like, well, I'm gonna make a zine. What do I have to make a zine about? And I wasn't really interested in like, so I, I wasn't really necessarily interested in making like a personal zine. Um, so I was like, I'm gonna make this funny, you know, fanzine for Judith Butler. and. I um, was surprised at the response it got because the zine world at that point had like a lot of it was like really punk really personal stuff it was a little bit before Riot Girl, um, but it would be a lot of like reviews of stuff or you know I liked zines like Guinea Pig Zero or you know 8-Track Mind or whatever that were super specific 8-Track Mind was this guy who loved 8-Track cassettes um and he would he would talk about that and guinea pig zero was this guy who uh worked as a guinea pig you know like a um test subject for money and dishwasher was a great zine this guy dishwasher pete was trying to wash dishes in every one of the 50 states um so i loved those kinds of zines that were weird and specific and i got all the queer zines but none of them were like weird and specific and not for me i loved Tammy Ray's uh, I Heart Amy Carter was great. And there were a couple of other things that were really cool. And sometimes I would be able to find things that were coming out of San Francisco, like Whispering Campaign, that were more like literary anthology zines that I, and more in that sort of like new narrative Dennis Cooper world that I got excited about and then wasn't able to follow up on for a while. But when I did Judy, I was sort of surprised by the response. Um, and I... I had this girlfriend in New York when I left. Um, I had right when I left, I started dating this person who I had one of those like, do I want to be this person or date this person? Things about and really, in many ways, this person was like my butch role model. Um, and I was like, we were we were sort of like nine months like we would say non-monogamous at the time, but you know, like open, whatever, long distance. Like that was our relationship, but it was like this huge thing. And it was really like, so 
influenced by by this person um, in so many ways. And I remember early on, she was like, well, we're not going to be together in five years because like in five years, you're going to be too much for me. And I was like, I'm already too much for you. Um, but I was certainly at that moment in my life trying to be what anybody wanted me to be. I had long hair. Actually, I had long hair until I was 27. I really thought I looked like Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Um, and it really was many years before I realized I would have if I'd had a beard. Um, and so it was sort of like that was the 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 sort of thing. And then I was very stubborn, which I like attribute to being like kind of cussed and butch. I was like, I'm not, I can, like long haired butch. Like I've got my, like what? Girls know. Um, and it was true, like the girls I was interested in dating, which aside from like two, well, really aside from that one relationship, were really all people who identified as femme or would maybe later identify as femme, or mostly I've been pretty like um, butch for femme. But I think I've also like been interested in other experiences, but the thing about this person who I was dating, the butch who I was sort of like trying to be, really, um, was that she was friends with a lot of graduate students in other places who were like really, you know, queer theory, people who've become like kind of big queer theory people. I won't name any names. Uh, but I, so I made the zine and part of it probably was also to impress this person. Um, and so that kind of got passed around to these graduate students and I got, I don't know, this is way before your time, but there used to be an academic magazine called Lingua Franca. And this writer, Louisa, Larissa McFarquhar, who now writes for The New Yorker, interviewed me about Judy for it. And it was like way too much attention, right? Uh, and I did a second issue, Judith Butler called me and asked me to stop doing the zine. Looking back again, looking back, now this is before the internet. And the thing that's kind of funny is like, you know, there's like 70 million similar cultural productions on the internet now, and nobody's gonna be calling to say like, please, could you not do this anymore? Um, but it was a different time, and it was a tiny circulation, but it had, because I had, this, what, what didn't she like about it? Well, I know. you know, no, I think it was probably pretty revealing. It was gossip, and I think I think that the objection was, and I actually I will say that I have sympathy for this now as a, as a teacher and a parent. Like, I don't think she talked about being a parent, but I, I think it was I think like I think she had an objection to being sexualized, and there was that through the the course of the. The zine, it was highly, as she said, it's a highly parodic cultural practice. So I made that be the tagline. Um, you know, and it was, she was, you know, she was like my hero. It was totally amazing and intimidating to talk to her. And I was pleased that she thought it was funny, which she did. But she was also sort of like, this is too revealing. And I really do have sympathy for that now. And there are certainly things in it now that like there, there's language that I use in it that I would not stand by now, certainly, that I didn't understand about. Um, but it's not like putting something on the internet. It had a very different kind of circulation. But when I got, when this interview in Lingua Franca came out, which again, fairly low circulation, just academics. But I got a letter from an editor at like Random House, some one of these random, I think it was, I don't remember where it was, but it was one of the big, 
publishing houses in New York that was like, I saw your zine, it's hilarious, would you consider writing a book? And I just shut down and didn't write another word until I was 30. I was just <laughs> like, this is way too much. Like I had total shutdown, panic, like just felt like overexposed. Um, and I also was like too pressureful. I was like, I'm an imposter. Like, yes, I wrote that. But you know, some of the jokes are from other people or whatever. And that was, you know, which was mentioned in the thing, but still I was sort of like, I'm not really funny, you know, whatever. Like I just thought I can't do this. And then I didn't write again, aside from some Chandler Ross slash, but I didn't really write again until I was um, 30 and my girlfriend at the time and to this day, uh, not straight through, but still, uh, she was like, I don't know why you're in this soul crushing job. Because at this point I was back in New York. Uh, I had worked at NYU Press for a number of years, which was a great job. And then I trying to get into editorial. I've been in marketing. I tried to get into editorial. So I moved to this web development company. It was, it was, I worked with great people, but the work itself was terrible. And my partner was just like, she was in film school at the time and I think I sort of had that sense of like well if if you can do an MFA like if you can take yourself seriously like maybe I could take a night class so she was like you're a writer and I was like okay all right and again doing something to please a girl literally the through line of my life a woman um you know and somebody who knew me and was sort of like I see this in you I was like okay if you if you do it, maybe I can try. And I ended up taking a Gotham class. The, this is like these classes they have, um, you pay for them. They're like not part of an institution. Um, to, you know. But the person who ended up being my teacher was Carter Sickles, who is this really awesome writer. Uh, and he was very encouraging and not particularly like, oh my God, you're a genius. He was just like, you can do it, buddy. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do it. And then I, this was right before my 30th birthday. And so for my 30th birthday, my present to myself was I put all my stuff in storage. I sublet my apartment. I um, took an unpaid two month leave of absence. I had like, I think I had $1,500 saved at this point. And I rented a room off a friend in a house, the off season rent in Provincetown. I was like, I'm gonna go for two months and I'm just gonna try to write. And I'll go back to my job. But I got laid off a month in. And so I got, $3,000 of severance, which is like a huge chunk of money, and New York State unemployment, which I got, you know, I, I think of that as like my emerging artist grant. Um, and that was the moment where I, I started writing seriously so then. What year was, was this when you went to Provincetown? Uh, well, and I had been in Provincetown earlier than that, but this was, I went back in, um, was when I turned 30, so it would have been in 2001. Yeah, it was, 2001. It was like April 2001 and ended up seeing the long season there and, you know, working a little bit, but not really, um, trying to write and, and really just struggling with writing, but really trying to take it seriously. And this was a period where, so I've been involved with my partner at this point. We've been involved for like 22 years, we like to say, but this was in the early period of on again, off again. Um, so I was at the end of that period trying to figure out what I should do, where I should go. I didn't really want to go back to New York. I was sort of scouting around for thinking about places where I might live. We were in an off-again period. And what kind of writing did you think you wanted to do? I wanted to write fiction. 
because it was the thing I most wanted to be in. The, the, I, I mean, novels for me, like that's the conversation I wanted to be in. Um, I've always read a lot of poetry and maybe gone to more poetry readings and been friends with more poets, but I, I just really love novels. So that felt like what I wanted to do. Um, but I had no idea how to do it. So I ended up in the fall of 2001, I ended up um, in San Francisco, sort of in my in these kinds of wanderings. I uh, went, I thought I was going for a weekend, um, but I ended up staying for three years. And in the course of that, so when I first got there, I was still on this unemployment and I found a place to, I stayed with some friends, like a week turned into two weeks and then a sublet opened up and then another sublet. And I found myself falling into this life in San Francisco that was really, really wonderful and really the first time in my entire life that I felt like a kind of falling into a place with ease. I mean, I loved being in New York, but it was sort of like, here I am like this kind of dorky person on the outside trying to like scrabble in, now making my friends. But in San Francisco, I had friends I already, I had friends who'd moved there or people who I knew through my partner. Again, we were not together at that time, but you know, um, some friends who sort of like introduced me to a scene and I sort of like, everything was so easeful, which is not the normal San Francisco experience. But for me, it really was. And part of it was, it was at a, a sort of like the, the first tech bubble had just burst. So a lot of people were leaving the city and it was a little bit cheaper than it had been. It was much cheaper than New York or Provincetown, to be honest. And um, I just, I had all this ease and I got, I I knew Eileen Miles by this point personally. I'd, I'd been, you know, like huge fan of theirs for a really long time. And we'd known each other kind of ambiently for years, but they'd started dating my ex a few years before this. And um, so we'd become friends and they were like, oh, I was sort of like, Eileen, are there any, like, what, I, are, are there any workshops I could take in San Francisco that you know of? And they were like, why don't you take, why don't you write to Dodie Bellamy and ask if you could, you know, be in that workshop. So I, Eileen introduced me to Dodie. So I, I took Dodie Bellamy's workshop and Kevin Killian was in that. He's, Dodie's partner was Dodie's partner. Um, and so that was, and I ended up doing that for like a year. It was like her living room, you know, and that was in many ways, it was the second time I'd taken a creative writing anything because I'd never taken any creative writing courses or anything like that up to this point, except for Carter's class in New York at Gotham. But so this was sort of my introduction and I was in a room with people, some of whom like Alvin Orloff and Tara Jepsen, Mark Ewart, um, Julia Block, many of them had either had MFAs or had published books and I was really intimidated. Like Kevin Killian had published like a lot of books and was, you know, to my mind, Dodie and Kevin were these stars and I couldn't even believe I was in the room with them, let alone in a workshop. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing and I was like, oh shit, I gotta figure out how to write a story. And so I started rewriting Greek myths as a way to have a plot and I was sort of like laying this autobiographical material on a skeleton of Greek myth and like the beginning of Paul is me trying to work out something you know in my life um 
laid over a Greek myth, the Greek myth fell away. Um, but that was where I started working on things that became Paul. So that was in like the winter of 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you start with Greek myths? Like what drew you to that? Well, I think two things. One, it had always been, I had that, um, there was a book of Greek mythology for kids, Dallaire's book of Greek myths. Um, I can show it to you, my copy is probably over there. I, my kid has it now. And that was a favorite of mine as a, as a child. And there were, there were, I'd been sort of like working through these ideas about like queerness and sexuality and gender that felt somehow connected to those those stories. And so I was like, okay, what if I just retell a story as a as a way to sort of figure out what this was. Um, and the other thing was that part of it was also again to impress my at that point ex now the the once in future girlfriend so I was always trying to you know and, and she loved Greek mythology so I was like yes I can also do that um I so when I started writing what became Paul I was writing about things that had happened like five or ten years previous and that felt like recent history to me you know because that was so that was like 2001 2002 and some of the things I was writing about were probably in the yeah, they were like the early mid '90s, um, and so it didn't, you know, it didn't feel so far away. Uh, may I pause this really quick? Yeah, 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 totally. Recording. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, See, so you were describing. Um, uh, you started out writing Paul sort of as this like kind of like autobiographical thing that was overlaid with yeah. retelling of Greek mythology. Um, and when did you actually, see, so you started working on this before you went to school? Yeah, so I was, at that point, so I, I had started working on it in Dodie's workshop, and around that time my unemployment ran out, and I had been, you know, doing certain kinds of other things to get by, um, pet sitting, etc. Uh, as an aside, did you have, like, a favorite bad job over the years? Oh. I've had so many jobs. Um, like a bad job that you really liked. I don't know. I mean, well, I was going to say that around this time I started working in Dog Eared Books, which was one of my favorite jobs I've ever had in my life. And I, I got the job in part because um, Alvin, who was in Dodie's workshop, worked there and encouraged me to apply. Uh, and, I, and then I spent a number of years working at Dog Eared before I realized that I couldn't really... Um, I was starting to want to take writing more seriously. I was doing... I had read out a little bit, like um, Michelle T and Tara Jepsen had this night called Kvetch uh, at Sadie's Flying Elephant, um, and that was like a queer open mic, and it was really great, and I featured at that, was one of like a huge thing for me. The first time I ever read as a feature, actually, uh, this this uh, writer Aaron, I think her name was Aaron White, or Aaron O'Brien maybe, Aaron O'Brien. She organized this reading at Dolores Cafe, and it was me and Julia Serrano, which was really awesome um, for like my first non-open mic feature. Um, and Michelle T asked me to read at a benefit at El Rio, and that was sort of like I was like, oh, okay, I could be getting into the literary scene here. I really dug the literary scene in San Francisco because I felt like people were doing 
exciting things and there were some MFA people but it was also a lot of sort of I was also in that kind of more queer open mic world and when I say open mic I'm not meaning like spoken word or slam I'm meaning more sort of like you're reading yourself at a bar yeah Um, well it really but the thing was that that particular scene that I was excited about and interested in was more dominated by prose writers so it was like Michelle T like Tara like those were all prose writers and who have also written poetry but it it wasn't the same kind of a thing I was living with uh, Shauna Virago at, at this sort of the end of my time in San Francisco the last year year and a half uh, who is a who's in a band called uh, Chana Rago and the Deadly Nightshades and like so there was just like a really cool queer art scene trans art scene that was um that that felt like fun and fresh and invigorating and I loved working at the bookstore I, one of my colleagues so Alvin Orloff was there um and uh Ari Banyas who's a poet and across the street at Modern Times, Tisa Bryant was was working as a bookseller. So we had like a lot of there were a lot of like writer bookseller, like everybody kind of on Valencia, um, that feeling. And I thought this is really good, but I I felt overwhelmed by trying to make work while having a full time retail job, which I loved, but I just wasn't quite pulling it together in terms of. And I had cheap rent, but I just couldn't. I felt like I just couldn't quite make it work, and I didn't really feel like I could say I was a writer. And were you living in that area, in, like around uh, Valencia? Let's see. I think I lived on. I lived on. When I first moved to San Francisco, I lived on Downey Street, um, and then I lived um, on Presida and a couple apartments on Presida, and um, my last apartment, the longest place I lived, was in Noe Valley on Twenty Seventh. And that was with Shauna. Um, and then I, yeah, so it was very much, I was sort of very like mission, hey, Presida centric. Um, and this was in the like 2001 to 2004 range. And, and in the course of that time, when my partner and I had gotten back together and we decided to move to Philly where she had some adjunct work and I was a come with guy and I loved Philly I wanted to go to Philly that was fine with me so we left San Francisco moved to Philly and I realized at that point that I wanted to also apply to graduate schools MFA programs so that I felt like I could say I'm a graduate student which somehow seemed easier than saying I'm a writer um I felt like I'd have an alibi and I did end up I applied to graduate schools applied to four graduate schools got rejected from three but the one I got into was in Philly where we already were so um and it was at Temple with Samuel Delaney and that and I got funding so I went even though it was a master's and not an MFA so I was sort of it has since turned into an MFA but I I really wanted to work with Samuel Delaney and I had only applied to places where you know my partner and I both felt like we could both live and get work or so I did that program and that was really, that was a big um, deal for me in terms of feeling like I could say I was a writer. And also working with Chip was phenomenal. And he really was the person who, at that time I was still sort of doing these Greek myth retellings, but I had moved into this sort of like more anachronistic retellings that were less autobiographical. And I brought, when I brought what, 
was what became the first bit of Paul into a workshop with Samuel Delaney, he was like, I think you're not done with Paul. He was like, this is the thing you should be working on, not this other stuff. But he was supportive of me working on the other stuff. Was Paul always Paul in the book? Yeah. Because you've described him being a kind of autobiographical um, yeah. character. So yeah, I think, um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm always hesitant to talk too much about, you know, like my intentions. I don't know how interesting that is for, I, I don't know how useful it is for writers to talk about their intentions, but to the extent that it was autobiographical, like Paul, you know, is a character, like I, a lot of people suggested that I change the pronouns for Paul, dependent on depending the, on, how on Paul's embodiment. Um, and I felt very strongly throughout, like I will not do that. And I was not able to articulate it until much later when I realized that, like after defending it for a really long time and finding that I was defending it, you know, in, in places like workshops where it was mostly like cis straight readers who were just like, well, you know, how is it possible that you're not using she here? And I'm like, but you know, let's destabilize the pronouns. And I realized later that part of it was, you know, this just desire to, to sort of like destabilize. Like by the end of the book, I hope that the pronoun he doesn't have, like I hope that it, it's not so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to, to destabilize the pronouns by doing the opposite. Like, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, but when you're talking about his vagina mm-hmm. and you're talking about it for a long time. It defamiliarizes it. I think there's a, yeah. there's a way. And it's, of course, not the book that I would write if I was starting to write a book now. But it was a book that I worked on for a long time and I felt like it had its, in, you know, its integrity and, and I wanted to do that. I also, I don't think it's irrelevant, and I haven't really talked about this at all, but that... Paul did feel like, uh, in many ways, you know, I am not Paul, but there, a lot of me is in Paul, and I, I chose to use a close third person narrator for a variety of reasons that um, have to do more with craft and what's possible, but I, I. <laughs> At the time, I was still using she, her pronouns. In the course of writing the book, I did end up shifting to they, them pronouns. Again, you know, the pronoun thing is not really my fight. Um, I think it's incredibly important to respect people's pronouns. I've been finding a lot of space in the they, them pronouns. Um, I was unable to write something autobiographical that used she, her pronouns. It felt completely dysphoric, dissociating, like just totally like, well, not going to be able to write that. Um, and so I think to me, it's, it's like part of it's interesting. I mean, I could just as well be using he, him pronouns for myself now. I happen to not be particularly, but I, I think to the extent that Paul is autobiographical, the things I was working out, I needed them to, to remain complex. And I, I didn't like that sort of easy parallel like you have a particular embodiment you use a particular pronoun i think it, it's easy now to say that even 10 years ago people were not really picking that up when i was trying to explain it in the workshop i've gotten better at explaining it i think or maybe it's just it just is one way of thinking about things um this is why i'm not a theorist because i start rambling and i can't really talk 
in an articulate way about these things. But yeah, so I think of Paul as as a character through whom I have been able to work out some things. A lot of the things are not don't map on to my life, but some of the things do. Mm-hmm. Was Paul always a shapeshifter from the early stages? Of book? Yeah, yeah. I originally started the the very beginning of the book was. I don't think it's evident at all now, but I was trying to retell the Tiresias story from Greek mythology where there's this character, or this, this person, Tiresias, who is, you know, a man, and then he's he's punished by the gods and turned into a woman for seven years, and then he's punished by the gods again and turned back into a man and blinded. Um, it's an interesting story. I don't think you can even see the trace of it in that beginning, but it a lot of the stories I was interested in in Greek mythology... And Roman, because Ovid is somebody who loves a shapeshifter, you know, and who loves a trans narrative. Uh, and so I, I think those stories were attractive to me because there's so much about shapeshifting all the time. The gods are constantly shapeshifting. Mm-hmm. Zeus is constantly taking the form of a swan or whatever. Yeah, turning people into pigs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not just animal stuff, you know, it's like mm-hmm. Zeus is taking the form of a mortal man or, you know... But many of the, the the gods often would also shapeshift in terms of gender, species, mortality, all these things. Was it, and is that so, I, I, I'm trying to think how to ask this. Um, um, I guess I kind of wanted to ask, just like sort of, I mean, I understand that it came, comes out of mythology partly, but um, it strikes me as interesting that there's this, I mean, queerly is like kind of like having a magic moment, you know, um, but I, I was sort of interested in like how you sort of decided to organize a book since you started writing it, um, you know, years ago before sort of current like speculative kind of like, um, I mean, was that, was that simply it? Like you were just sort of interested in sort of body changing possibilities in, in mythology and classical texts like that? Yeah. I mean, I think like many queer and trans people, I've been always looking for stories that somehow speak to my experience and you know shape-shifting stories are something I've been really like hunted down you know like there aren't actually that many really satisfying novels about shape-shifting I've read a lot of them um really many of them are not satisfying but you know like one of my favorites is uh Wild Seed by Octavia Butler which is more about um body jumping but has some similarities there and while she's you know working through legacies of the transatlantic slave trade and she's you know her focus is really different i was really excited by her sort of science fiction you know fantasy sort of like like she's just like she's just going into it telling a gripping narrative story about people who are in different bodies and that was you know i i remember i was i was cat sitting for a, a professor um in iowa city and she'd left a bunch of Octavia Butler books out and I was I had a huge crush on her and I was sort of like oh my god whatever she's reading I'm gonna read and I just remember sitting in her house in Iowa City with her petting her cats and just like blasting through like 10 Octavia Butler books um and that was when I sort of got excited about that so those got in really early but I was really into science fiction I mean Samuel Delaney was one of the people for me I came to Samuel Delaney's work through uh, Marilyn Hacker's work, who was his ex-wife, and she's a lesbian poet um, whose work I love. I 
there was a special issue of Plowshares, which I read in, in high school, that had all of these amazing people. It had Marilyn, ha Marilyn Hacker, I think, was the editor, but it had like Marilyn Hacker, Eileen Miles, Samuel Ace, um, all of these people. So I got obsessed with them and I started trying to research them. And through Marilyn Hacker, I discovered Samuel Delaney, and then I read his memoir, The Motion of Light and Water, which is about his relationship with, with Hacker and coming out as a queer person, a science fiction writer, um, and living in the East Village in the 60s and 70s. And, and I was like, oh, that's what it means to be like, that's how you can have like a queer adulthood as an artist. And it was really exciting. Their relationship was interesting. Um, but so from that book, I then, I'd already liked science fiction as a kid, but then I got really into, you know, queer science fiction. And, and Delaney was my gateway there. Um, and in the early 90s, there was a lot of cyberpunk stuff happening, which I was also really, really, really excited about. And there's a lot of stuff about bodies and AI and different kinds of, and, and gender and stuff like, um, you know, like Maureen McHugh and Pat Cadigan and Emma Bull. Like all of these writers were asking questions about gender that were really interesting and that were happening in science fiction that weren't necessarily happening elsewhere. But there was also a queer, like there was new queer cinema in the early 90s and there was also like a queer literary explosion where you had writers like, you know, Sarah Shulman and Dennis Cooper and Eileen Miles and Heather Lewis and, you know, Essex Hempel and um, all these amazing writers. Um, Bob Gluck, really exciting directions for me. So I was excited about science fiction. I was excited about shape-shifting. I was excited about any kind of queer cultural production. And it, I think like, well, Chip would always say the last three books you have read come out and you're writing to read good books. Um, Samuel Delaney uh, called Chip. So he would always tell us that. And I think that, you know, it's more than three books. It's like whatever, I've been like stuffing this stuff in for years and it all came out in Paul. So it made sense that it doesn't really fit in anyone category because I've been pretty excited about a lot of different categories. Um, but I think, you know, it, it doesn't really work as a sort of, it, the book doesn't cohere for real science fiction people because I, I don't get into the shape-shifting abilities in the way that is satisfying for real science fiction people. And I knew that and I, I always felt sort of bad about it. Like my dream would be to write a satisfying science fiction book or a book that would satisfy those people. I don't know if I can do it. It's still a fantasy. It's still a dream. It's still a goal. Um, I, there was a really, yeah, I just, I knew that that was not going to be the thing. So it's nice that there are other people who are writing things right now that are in a more, I think of a, a fabulous, like a queer trans fabulous moment where it's sort of slipstream magic realism, you know, science, some science fiction fantasy stuff, but like, I'm delighted by work like Kai Cheng Tom or Carmen Machado, um, River Solomon, who's more of a real serious science fiction person. Jordy, obviously, you know, working within historical fiction and science fiction traditions, but messing with them. It's exciting to be sort of feel like, you know, to feel like there's something happening that's more widespread because it's also for me that's more of the stuff I want to read so 
Yay. Have you always been a science fiction reader? Yeah. Fan? Yeah, totally. What's your I'm hopping around a little bit at this point, but yeah. um uh, what's your uh what's the book's reception been like for you? Startling? Um I mean I'm really happy. I thought so when I was finished with the book was I finished a draft maybe right before our kid my partner had our our child um and I was revising I remember when our kid was about six months old I was finishing up a revision to send to agents I sent to some agents I got very kind rejections and I felt like I had done that I I, I got the message that this was not a book they could sell and I um knew some people at Rescue, which was a small press base in Iowa City and, and uh, Ohio, actually. And they were really wonderful editors and, and mostly poets. They made these beautiful books, and they were like, we have this open prose submission period. We do like one book of prose a year. You should submit. And I did, and they said, we want to do it. And I just was like, oh, my God. Like, okay, great. This is amazing. Like, let me just... It's small press. I love the small press world. I kind of came up in a literary small press culture. It, I think, you know, small press books are often, you know, where you can do more innovative things. And I thought, well, this is great because that's like a conversation I'm also in and, and appreciate. And also, like, I wanted to try to see if I could get it, you know, like get an agent and go like the mainstream route because I'm not opposed to that. Um, and, and I thought, well, okay, well, I'm going to do this, and then I'll get this book off my desk. Probably people aren't interested in gender or the 90s anymore, so I can just, but I did spend a lot of time on it, and I feel like it's as good as I can get it, and I would like it to be out. And then maybe I can write something else, and I'll have a book, and I can apply for jobs, because I was adjuncting, you know. And so in a lot of ways, it was sort of like the sensible move. But also, I really love the editor's and the, this, I love that press so much, and they're really, really wonderful people, and they made aesthetically beautiful objects, which is really important to me. So then, you know, they, as small presses can, they put all of their resources behind the book. Um, and then, yeah, for a variety of reasons I still don't understand, people seem to still be interested in gender in the 90s. And that's been, <laughs> that's, I think it's been in a lot of ways a surprise for me. And I've said this like a lot of times and it's become like a cliche, but it's true. Like when I started, it wasn't historical fiction. It was like, I'm writing about things that had just, you know, recent past. Um, and then it became historical fiction over that course, recent history, but still historical to the point where I had to fact check my memory. And, and that was really pleasurable actually. And it got me excited about that. Um, but I, I think that I have no idea what I was talking about. Um, what did I ask you? Uh, oh, the book's reception originally. I asked you originally. Yeah, so it, it, people being interested in that yeah, I guess maybe at that point yeah. people became interested in, it was far enough away in time that people were interested. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, am, I am really grateful and excited and surprised. So one of the things that happened was I... I, the book got a small, um, a briefly noted review in the New Yorker, which I didn't necessarily understand was going to mean this, but was really life changing because after that review, it turns out a lot of people read the New Yorker. 
So after that review, there were some queries about foreign rights um, and about film and TV rights. And so at that point, my editors at Rescue were just sort of like, do you want us to help you find an agent to kind of handle these things? Or, you know, what, you know, do you need help? And I was like, you know, I'm going to go back to one of the agents who originally had said no. And he was the agent. I kind of had an agent crush on him. And he's like this queer punk, like awesome. But I just aesthetically, I was like, it's him. It's always him. You know, maybe now he'll take me on. But I sort of said, like, you know, I don't know if if you'd be willing to take another look at this or if you would even just know somebody good because I trust your taste who could help me with these things. And he was like, okay, like, let me take another look. And he was like, I'm not going to, you know, say I was wrong before, but I think the timing wasn't right then and it's right now and let's do this. And he then took me on as a client, which was really cool and exciting. And Rescue was amazing about it. And um, he then said, like, he was working on getting it published in the UK and working on, like, film and TV rights stuff. And that's, you know, I think that's, like, why he took it on, because it's sort of, like, at that point, they were, it was sort of clear that it, it was something that, from a business perspective, made sense, whereas it didn't the first round. So it had to, it kind of had to happen that way. But one of the things that happened was he, um, you know, with working with Rescue and and in a situation that I think hopefully will continue to be good for them, um, sold it to be reprinted by Vintage Knopf. So and then and so they so Rescue gets like half that advance, and then if if it earns out the royalties, they'll always get half. So hopefully that will continue to benefit Rescue my benefactors, um, while also allowing the book to have a wider distribution and sort of stay in print, which is sometimes can be harder for a small press. Um, although they do an amazing job. They're wonderful. Uh, but sometimes some things are just harder for a smaller press. So this has worked out really nicely. But I, again, it's like really surprising to me. Um, Jordy had been asked to be in this interview in the New York Times. Uh, and then because he's very kind and my best friend and my housemate, um, he was like, hey, do you want to also talk to my housemate, you know, who's another writer? And so this guy, Peter Haldeman from the New York Times, interviewed both of us and for this feature on like trans lit, which is kind of weird to be in that category as somebody who feels like trans-ish or never quite trans enough to, to count. Um, although I, I do feel myself to be trans ish trans masculine um language stuff again not my favorite but happy to be in that number and then you know the guy included other people whose work i'm really happy to be in conversation with like again kai cheng tom and rivers solomon and a, a quakey as me and some other people um and jordy obviously but that was another weird thing that happened that happened through you know these social connections um, because Jordy's book came out on a big imprint of Random House and in a really different way. And so his sort of publication road was like really, really, really different. And so like people were, you know, doing like these big um, features and thinking of him in that way. And Rescue is amazing, but they don't have that level of like they'd hired this really cool, awesome publicist to do their marketing. They don't have a marketing person. So they hired somebody to do like that work for my book and another book that came out at the same time you know part-time before the launch but it wasn't like random house and it's different now working with 
you know, vintage and then also Picador in the UK, who's been really cool and amazing. And that's been surprising too, that in the UK, I also thought, well, this won't translate outside of the US, but for whatever reason it has. And that's also really exciting and, and, and a way to sort of like meet all these new people, younger people and older people that I have found myself connecting with. Um, yeah, it's really, to be honest, I don't know what to make of it, but I'm really happy about it. Uh, can you uh, talk a little bit more about your, your kind of thoughts, reactions to the, the book being um, received as a trans Yeah, I mean, I feel like, like, I feel like really clear, like this is not a trans narrative or like, I don't want this to be like an anthemic trans book. Like, I don't, I don't want that because it's not, I don't love the idea of like a representative book or, a, you know, a sort of like, I'm happy when people write those because I want there to be lots and lots of books, but I don't want to be this sort of like vector of like making an anthem. It's not for me. Let other people do that. Um, I, I like the idea of something that's like small and weird and like not as easily categorizable. Um, or medium-sized and weird and less categorizable, which is more how I identify as medium-sized. But I um, think that it is a book that I hope is of interest to trans readers. Like, it is a book that I would have wanted to read. Um, and I think that that I don't expect it to be a book that is of interest to, like, all trans You know, it's like, it, it's of interest to people to whom it's of interest. Like, if it's interesting to you, it's interesting to you. Like, I don't, I really, like, I hate the, hmm. I, I have so much trouble with the idea of these sort of, like, canons of, of, like, you know, like the 12 books you haven't read already, and if you haven't read them, you're a bad person. Those kinds of, like, listicle, canon-making kinds of moments that are happening. And I, and I, like, I'm grateful to be on lists, but I like it when they're lists of, like, 171 books rather than, you know, like there's some lists where you're like, oh, that's awesome because that's like, that's going to take a couple years to get through that. And there are some lists where you're just like, now I just feel like a jerk because I haven't read these books or I have read them. So do I feel great? I don't, I don't like that. Um, and I really, there's a way in which I understand that it's probably good for me professionally or in terms of career stuff, if my book is like taught but there's a part of me that's just like, don't require anybody to read this. Like, I, I love the idea of like things that are not required. Mm. You know, I remember when we worked at Dog Eared, we used to keep track of like wh which books were most stolen, you know? And it was kind of, it's kind of funny to, often that like Michelle T's books were always, people were always stealing those books, um, Philip K. Dick. But it's like, I like that idea. I like the idea of, of like you stumble on it, you know? And it's not necessarily like, doing work of positive representation, which I think is fine and good work. I think there's a, we need lots and lots of books and lots and lots of representation. And um, I I heard Ocean Vong was talking at his book launch here for On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous. He was talking about how he um, decided to, he had written this, uh, essay for the New Yorker uh, called A Letter to My Mother That She Will Never Read. 
roughly that. And then that eventually became this book on Earth, You're Briefly Gorgeous. But in the course of writing out that narrative, he said, I'm, this is a novel. And he, it's a novel, it's fiction, right? And he said, one of the things that he feels strongly about is holding that space for, you know, queer writers of color to say, like, this is art. Like, I am, not that creative nonfiction or memoir or essay isn't art, but to sort of say, like, I am, I'm claiming the space of fiction and the space of art. And um, for me, that really resonates. Like, I think I like the idea of, of what fiction can do is, is sure, it can offer positive representations or, you know, ways of thinking about how to be a person that may be useful for people, but it, and it can, like, teach and, you know, help people build empathy like all of those things I think are probably true um but they're not the reason why I read and I don't know if it's you know I I I think what fiction and what art can do is offer these things that are sort of like messy and unreasonable and not articulated for you and not like some perfect hunk of like crystalline theory that explains the world it's sort of like, no, here's, have some feelings about this. And, you know, I think if somebody hates my book, maybe that is of, you know, like that is of use. Like, why do you hate it? Great. Like, what's there? Or what do you hate about it? I mean, I, I don't actually want anybody to hate my book, but like a strong feeling to me is, is good in response to art. Um, and I, I, I like the idea that we are at a moment in publishing where there can be lots of different books that can come under the sign of trans or queer and that can mean a lot of different things like there's this book normal people by sally rooney um she's this young irish writer who wrote this book conversations with friends which is which has some queer explicitly queer content um but normal people is her second book and it's about you know like these straight cis white irish people um and their relationship and I think it is such a queer book you know and I have this whole story about how it's this really like super queer narrative and I love it for that even though on the surface it looks like just a very straight love story um but there's to me there's a moment that's happening where queer and trans people are changing publishing and changing art and there's so much stuff that's exploding and so to be a part of that is really exciting um and I think the thing that troubles me is when I, I see the ways in which, like in that New Yorker, I mean not New Yorker, in that New York Times feature on trans writing, they had this big picture of me and Jordy at the top. And, you know, Jordy is very handsome and it was a fine picture. I looked extremely raggedy and tired, which is accurate because that's normally how I look being parent of a small child. Um, and I think, I get that we have an interesting story because we're, old friends and now we like, you know, are housemates and, you know, queer kinship and all of that. But there was a way in which it's sort of like, we're these like white transmasculine people at the beginning of this feature. And there are a lot of writers of color in the story and like why, and there were beautiful pictures of some of those writers and like, why weren't those pictures up top? And, you know, I, I think like, I don't, I don't want to be a representative of anything. I don't really think there's a danger of that, but um, I do feel like a resistance to that. I like the idea of just like a 
Well, I would prefer a huge group photo, but obviously you'd have to get people from all over to come to one place. But in general, like I think just more books, more films, more TV shows, more music, more of everything. Um, if I ask a sort of, uh, um, I guess a kind of, kind of on the nose identity question for a trans oral history interview. Huh. Uh, if you're comfortable, did you comment because you also mentioned like like knowing folks who sort of like I don't know if you use the word transition, but like sort of you know like. I don't know, came to trans like later in life yeah. or whatever. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, if you want your experience with that and also other folks in your like social world who've um, sure maybe yeah come into trans uh, I mean, as adults. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think like I as a very small child, you know, again like four, four or five. I I remember having a strong sense of like I'm a boy. Things are going to grow eventually. I had to sort of like I came to some sort of realization in you know like late elementary school early middle school or sort of like well that seems like it's not happening I guess I must be queer um having to do with gender and sexuality together um and yet I still always had this sort of sense of like identifying in any situation I would identify with whatever was more on the boy or man or masculine tip um in terms of social dynamics, in terms of sexuality, anything that always just felt more just sort of like, well, that's who I am. But I also was actively trying to survive high school, you know, and trying to seem like a girl. I was at an, this all girls school. I was, you know, I was trying, I grew my hair out in my like junior year of high school, I think, or senior year of high school. Cause I was like, I was like determined. I was like, I'm going to try to, see if I could look like a girl. And also, you know, I think there was a there was a part of me that was like, I wanna see if I can look like a pretty girl so that nobody can ever say I'm gay because I'm ugly, um, which I think is a really common story. And really soon, you know, I got to New York, I had this girlfriend, my first really, my first actual girlfriend, like I'd had, these people, not really my girlfriend, but sort of my girlfriend, but my first actual girlfriend who I went out for like two months, um, like I had long hair, she had short hair. She was totally femme. And it was, it was a time of like, everything was like lipstick lesbians in New York at this moment. She was like totally femme. She went to Barnard. I, it was like totally a secret that she was femme and it was totally a secret that I was butch. Like it was just like a, that was like secret, you know? It was just like, there was an internal thing and a private thing that was sort of like, in public you had to do these other things. And so much of it also had to do with like, representational politics. But you know, like for instance, around that, like around the time I was like 19, I, I had like a really curly hair and it's really, it gets like really large. And I was sort of like, ah, oh, like I was really ambivalent. And this is, it's kind of funny now because like undercuts are a thing. I did not know they were a thing and they weren't necessarily a thing in like, 1990 when I had everything shaved here and then like really long hair on top which I had till I was about 27 and cut my hair off but I I remember like I I knew some people who were doing drag I remember the first time I ever bound in public I had like my hair stuffed into a baseball cap with just the undercut showing and I bound and I it was like a poker night. It was like 
1990 probably at this these like I thought of them as much older but they were probably like 25 these artists I knew who I knew in the East Village Lower East Side and I remember like I drank too much and like thought I was gonna pass out because I didn't I think I had an ace bandage and I think I was like it was way too tight um and that was something that I was sort of like I wasn't nobody was telling me anything about it. I didn't have any support I wasn't like I wasn't in a community of people talking about stuff I knew trans people did you um, get the idea of buying from like drag shows or elsewhere this was before drag king stuff drag was king. Uh, common uh-huh. Uh, or even really, yeah. Um, I got the idea to bind from reading HQ 76 from start to finish. Of course. Um, you know, I, I think I was, I was just, this was a time where Different Light and Oscar Wilde were, there were two queer bookshops in New York City. And, you know, I spent a lot of my life in those bookshops. So, you know, I probably got it from Radcliffe Hall. Um, which was a book I also, I read Radcliffe Hall, Well of Loneliness, and Ruby Fruit Jungle in the same weekend when I was 14, so just, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, like, I'd always known about those things, but I hadn't really started doing them in public until, like, I was probably around 19, um, but I was very, very stubborn, but then I also, I had, I was dating this one, this person was butch, who wanted me to be, like, femme or whatever, and I was sort of, like okay well I can't cut my hair I guess like I had this whole thing where I sort of like I wanted that attention and then after that relationship that was that nine month long distance non-monogamous thing hugely formative to my life um and I obviously failed like really miserably at being femme because I wasn't but also I was trying I wanted to please whoever was the person I had this desire to please you could psychoanalyze that listeners um but I then had another girlfriend for a long time again long distance and open so there were a lot of other people in those times those periods too but I had another girlfriend who was at the time femme who had a whole thing about me keeping my hair long and I like I didn't have that sort of inner sense of self where I was like I can risk this person not being attracted to me like I didn't feel like I could like I'd been wanting to cut off my hair but I was sort of like A I don't want people to not be attracted to me who I am attracted to even if they're attracted to me in a way that doesn't totally resonate for me um I was still attracted to them and then the other thing was I I felt like a sort of stubborn sense of I can have long hair and be butch be masculine and have that recognized and reflected back to me. And it was by, at this point more, like New York was pretty, was getting more butch fam at that point then sort of, and I was just kind of getting, and in Iowa City that was much more operative. Um, and then when I came back to New York, it was like heavily butch fam. So I think that I was sort of more legible as a long haired butch at that point, like in my late, mid, in my mid twenties. But then I finally, broke up with this person and I was like, I'm cutting my hair. And then I was like, oh, right. And when I cut my hair, it's kind of interesting because when I cut my hair, then everybody I knew was like, are you transitioning? This was probably in 97, 97. 
and I was I was sort of like I mean no I just cut my hair I'm exactly the same person who's wearing exactly the same things I've been wearing since I was 14 years old you know like Levi's cords and a button down or whatever and so I I think I was always a little bit like what's the line there like I don't know what the line is like I'm more legible and that's pleasurable but I was also like I have been you know thinking about medically positioning like you know I would say I think about it every day for the past like 25 30 years like NBD um, but I still haven't and it doesn't mean I won't but also I'm 48 at this point so there's other factors and some of the factors had to do with different things in life stage um, I mean you know like a lot of people I read so much blues when it came out and I thought oh well I am Jess that is clear um, and I think I and and I think that book was the book that allowed me to use the word butch for myself and feel like it didn't necessarily mean lesbian because I I think the, the thing with with so much blues is it's sort of like you're just a butch like noun and that felt like a clear category to me until in the last like five or ten years it's felt like a category that has been in some ways evacuated I think people are reclaiming in a good way but there was a period where it felt like a lot of people I knew who identified as butch were like I am a butch woman I am a butch lesbian and I was like fair enough but that isn't that doesn't work for me at all and if you need to claim that space for being what butch means I can totally see why and I honor and respect that but then I don't feel space in butch for me at that point and that was around you know so like in the last 10 years or so I think I've been sort of more like I identify as like transish or transmasculine or sort of like whatever word is floating around I'm sort of like okay ish like I never liked the word genderqueer I don't really like the word non-binary because I think I'm pretty binary you know what I mean but I don't again not a theorist I'm happy to like provisionally fall into any of those categories um and I'm happy to let other people do that work and then sort of like use whatever is at hand to communicate and I also have a lot of you know I I live I have I've had I've been involved with the same person for 22 years which has been a really wonderful formative relationship in my life I'm a kid we live in a town that is really queer and trans friendly in my experience um you know we we never for instance like go to the playground where we don't see other families that have you know similar configurations to ours like it's a really unusual thing in that way to have that kind of reflection so i don't feel like i've i feel like in a good way like in a bubble that's containing and sheltering and i haven't felt like i have to defend certain things so i've been able to in many ways just sort of like avoid identifying which is kind of funny because when I was young I was sort of like oh my god these people who are like labels aren't for boxes and like I was just like come out already you know out of the bars into the streets like you know it was a real political imperative in my youth for people to be out and at that point you know as queer and that had to do with you know AIDS crisis and also homophobia and the workplace and all these different things and I think like around trans stuff it feels really different there's different kind of political imperatives but I 
I guess it's sort of a place where I've been able to not I've been able to sort of just be like I feel like largely seen and understood by the people for whom it means the most to me to be seen and understood by I lost track of the prepositions in that sentence um and and that is that is okay with me um and yet I still have this yearning you know to to you know I don't know I I, I don't know if I I have a lot of ambivalence around maybe it's around self-care maybe it's around taking the time you know I have ambivalence I've just I have ambivalence around the structures of medical transition for myself that it could just be like again like this stubborn thing I tend to generally I identify strongly with Bartleby. Um, but you know, on the other hand, it's but it's like true ambivalence. Like I really want to, and I really don't want to. And so, I have for a long time just been like, okay, well then, just like keep going like this and see. Doesn't mean that that won't change. It's a funny thing to sort of be in that um, place of unknowing. I don't. I would say that I don't mind being in the place of unknowing, and. I think that that is, for many people, really untenable and really painful. And for me, it, for a variety of reasons, has been tenable and isn't, isn't particularly painful. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean... I don't know. Or does that, is that clear? No, I mean, it sounds like partly... And what I want to say is, like, for those of us who have read Foucault, the like, fact that we're sort of uh, inculcated to, um, um, to know with, like, you know, precise, exhaustive detail all, all the things about our inner gender and sexual self seems, like, it makes sense to me why people feel that, and also, like, why we don't have to feel that way. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the thing that I get stuck on is this question of, like, how do we know what we know? How do I know how I feel? And I, I think I, I don't... There's a point at which I'm sort of like, okay, well, stop thinking and just be, you know, and then, yeah. But as I as I'm getting older, then some questions arise about like things that may be fine and 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 workable in a youth and middle age may not, you know, as I in the future as I get much older, like some things I may want to change for varieties of reasons to do with aging and so it's just yeah it's stuff I think about and it's stuff I think is interesting to think about I imagine it might be nice to free up the thinking space to think about other things but I'm also okay with working with what is so yeah yeah I will say that lots and lots of people in my life um have transitioned in lots of different ways, but I have, yeah, so a lot of people I know are identified now as trans, or a lot of people I know, uh, interestingly, a lot of people I know right now who had identified as butch are identifying as non-binary and moving into they, them pronouns, and who are, you know, sort of more my age, a little bit younger and a little bit older too. And it's interesting to me to know some of the younger people, like 10 years younger, maybe like your age or something, who are um, 
who maybe didn't even identify as butch, but I might have identified them as butch, sort of sort of like coming to a non-binary identity and using they, them pronouns in a way that feels really interesting and kind of exciting to me. Um, I feel, I do feel like I have some, I, I do have some friends who identify as like butch lesbians who are not, um, who are, you know, not transphobic, obviously who have who are in circles that can be that and i think that's really stressful for them and i think that that's good work to try to you know work with people in those circles who are yeah like from i've i've sort of like i hadn't really ever been in a lot of like lesbian circles so i'd mostly been in like queer scenes and so it it doesn't really seem like I know very many people. Like most of the people I know, I think identify as queer or trans. And I mean, maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. I can't remember what we were talking about. But maybe that's okay. Yeah, I think we were talking about like uh, transitioning and knowing or not knowing, and also, um, you know, occupying those sort of liminal which non-binary, genderqueer kind of spaces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're trying to sort of talk to our kid. We, we've come up with a language of being like a in-betweener, mm-hmm. which when our kid was really little was useful to sort of, you know, but then some of my partner and I sometimes, you know, I think we also wonder if that is is like polarizing and, and like sort of binary mm-hmm. binarizing, you know, gender in a way and sort of saying like, well, you, you know, pushing things to the poles. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel sort of like in-betweeners fine. I feel, I've noticed recently that like um, like LGBT youth organizations seem to be using the language gender expansive. Yeah. Well, and not only youth, but children. Like there's a lot of stuff around, yeah, or gender creative uh-huh. or gender. Well, gender fluid, I feel like is pretty specific, but gender creative and gender expansive I actually think is, is helpful language around very small children, uh-huh. like really, really small. Which is different from youth. So I yeah, but I don't really know. And who's coming up with that language? Is it the kids? Is it the nonprofit workers? Is it the therapist? Like, you know. And, and then I always think about this stuff where people are thinking about, you know, coming up with the language. And it's. I mean, I think identity formation is so interesting. Sometimes my partner and I joke that like when we retire, like maybe I'll go get a PhD in sociology. Like just for retirement, because I'm I'm curious about these things, but I can't. I know, um, but I think like we use this language, and then it be like I remember a few years ago, some in some like academic bureaucracy, somebody suggested using the word non-binary, and I was like, I don't think any of my students use that. Like, I think they're all using genderqueer. That seems like I'm not sure where that's coming from, and now it's everywhere. You know? us, yeah. <laughs> well, but and I think it's sort of like these administrators somehow got that word from something I think you know social service providers and I don't know where they got the word but they got somebody got that word and then it trickled down and then it goes into materials that disseminate to people and then you know somebody comes into college in their first year and they're like oh these are the terms trans queer non-binary oh okay I see non-binary that's the term and it's interesting to see like knowledge production and identity formation happening at that level and sort of being part of it really ambivalently, sort of saying like, I, I guess you could use that word. It seems like a, 
that's very niche. Yeah. And now I'm like, okay, I accept non-binary. I thought that translates um, class a few years ago when non-binary was more new to me then. And like, I read a student who like half of his semester was like, but I just don't, you want to have any non-binary writers on this, like that we're going to read. And I was like, who, who on the syllabus is binary? <laughs> to read, I, that was my sort of coming to terms. I'm like, oh, there's so a, with you there's there. A new, like, you know, yeah, it takes a minute to. This, and I need to sort of be doing more work to explain the history and why that word is not exactly appearing. But there, there may be historical antecedents to the term itself. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's really interesting to think about the ways in which a lot of the people, you know, claimed under certain things might not use that language you know it's sort of I like I remember when I was in college one of the sort of big moves was the kind of like queer revisionist history and sort of looking back and thinking like oh well, that person was queer and that person was queer and that person was queer it's like they might not have identified thusly at the time um because it didn't make sense to that wasn't part of the historical context it would have been impossible historically for people to identify in certain ways but then some things you look at like that there was that like that, that doctor that trans doctor like early trans doctor who clearly wanted to always you know who you know was a man and was had asked for certain kinds of biographical information about his life to be destroyed upon his death and then it wasn't and then now he's being like reclaimed as a as a trans you know uh historical figure but then somebody wrote a book about him and used like she her pronouns and kind of tried to claim him as a passing so it's really it's very it's complex but it's sort of like that seems like a clear case of well he he was very clear and that seems like a clear case of you can look back and say that was a proto-trans identity even though it wouldn't have used that language at the time but then there are other people where you sort of look back and say like I don't know how this person would have identified. And what would Leslie Feinberg say, you know, were Leslie Feinberg alive today? And it's interesting to see how people use pronouns with Feinberg. Um, yeah, it's always sort of like, I don't know, claiming territory. Um, I want to be mindful of time. Thank um, you, yeah, let's, but, um, me too. So I guess I, um, you know, I, I haven't really asked you much specifically about like family life um, and wanted to at least give you an opportunity to talk about that more, however much you want to. Um, like being a parent and yeah, being here and sure, absolutely. Very relatedly, I need to pause and go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah. yeah. Parent. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask you about kind of parenting and family life. Yeah, um, so I I never thought I would be a parent. It never occurred to me to be interested in children or wanting kids. I, as a young person, I certainly did some babysitting and, and stuff like that, but it wasn't, I was, like I liked kids fine, but I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I wanna have kids or anything like that. Um, and in fact, I felt pretty strongly like I, I definitely didn't wanna certainly bear any children, um, and that felt, clearly to do with gender stuff to me. Um, but also I think coming out into queer life and identity at a time when sex and death were really intertwined. Um, and, and like one of the ways to resist that was thinking about 
sex is not procreative and sex is pleasure and sex is good and, and like queer sex is good and, and worth protecting um, meant that I was just never thinking about reproduction personally. And while I think I was, you know, certainly quite exploratory in my youth, I was never, I was not regularly in a situation where that was going to, like, I, you know, that was not really going to be a, um, something that just happened, um, in my life. So it wasn't until, um, my partner started thinking more about wanting to have a child and we talked about it and I realized that one of my, I kept sort of saying like, I just need a few more years. I just need a few more years because I got to, you know, like get my career stuff together. I got to finish school or, you know, I want to try to finish this thing I'm doing. But what I realized sort of scratching the surface of that and thanks to, you know, copious therapy um, was that a lot of my resistance was, and I had some resistance to even thinking about it really. And the resistance had to do with feeling not just like not wanting to be a mom, but like abject terror at the thought that anybody would ever think I was a mom. And it, it was like a real place of gender, like sort of refusal for me where I was sort of like, oh, I feel super strongly about this. And then what happened was my partner suggested um, that we could come up with a parent name that wasn't a mom word for me. And that unlocked everything for me because I was sort of like oh I actually like kids like kids are great I'd be happy to be parent like I don't know that I can I don't know that I want to have the endless number of conversations I would have to have if I used dad as a parent name um which would be a lot because I you know because of my embodiment I it would be it would be a constant explanation I didn't want to put a kid through that and I didn't want to put myself through that so even though that felt like in many ways, like that, that would work. I also felt like I'm not, I don't exactly, I don't know, you know, like I don't know that I want to be a dad. Although I've kind of come into more feeling sort of a little bit, like Jordi always calls me a normcore dad, um, as you can see from the full gap ensemble. Uh, and a lot of discussion of lawn mowing, which we could do later. But I think that once I realized that I didn't have to be a mom I became open to it and excited about it and then um, we had our child uh, my partner had our baby six years ago um, who is now an actual child not a baby and that has been you know one of the most revelatory and exciting things in my life and really fun to do with my partner um, who's an amazing mom and I think that you know, very, very occasionally something, somebody says something, of, you know, um, talks about my, like me being one of my kids' moms. And it's usually like a parent of a classmate. And then, you know, we just do a quick correction. And I think my kid sometimes gets confused and is like, I, uh, I only have one mom who's not here right now, you know. Uh, like when well-meaning people on the playground are like, go ask your mom. And my kid's just like, uh, she's at work. Um, so it was interesting that sort of place or, you know, having other kinds of language there and, and helpful language around, um, I wrote a couple of essays about this, like an essay about, you know, using a different parent name and an essay about having to do second parent adoption for my kid, um, 
for this uh, parenting magazine that Michelle T actually started. And what and is the second parent name we decided? We decided on Baba, which it, we decided because a number of people we knew were using that, um, and also because it's a parent name, or like a. It can be in. It's a name that's used in a lot of different cultures. None of which are are particularly connected to our family, but it's used in in like many, many, many world cultures, often to mean dad, sometimes to mean grandmother, sometimes to mean like um, a vuncular presence. So it, it didn't feel like it was located in one particular culture that was mine or not mine. So it felt sort of like it's a it's a word that's that's there. It also we know like for instance there's you know we know like a number of families not only in town but in our neighborhood who have a similar configuration where there's a parent who's a baba um and we know like in other queer families that we know in the world um it has also sort of moved out of that into bobs or bobby now which is very sweet and feels somehow like easy and fine. It's nice to be in a situation where there are lots of, where there's like a bunch of kids running around saying, Baba! And then, you know, we're sort of like, which one? Who does that kid want? Which is a nice feeling to be part of like a, you know, to have like that kind of collective experience that I think other, you know, parents get. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know how it's gonna, it's been fine, it's been easy in and it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's also, it, we certainly do know people who use Baba for, as a, a name, as a, you know, like for dads who use Baba because that is the dad name in their own cultures. And, and so that can be, I think, confusing but because it's in lots of different cultures it feels okay it has felt okay um but it'll be interesting to see where it goes and i think that we have one friend who started out as a baba and turned into a boppy and there's sort of there's something about the syllables too it's it's super easy for a baby to say so they say it first <laughs> um yeah so right now it's more bobs and one of the things that's been that's been interesting, like for instance, I we my partner and I got legally married before our child was born, um, despite you know I think philosophical and aesthetic objections, uh, because it is very clearly um, in terms of protecting our kid and family stuff it is very clearly uh advised and advisable so we did that i'm on the birth certificate as the father which i love which some parents in my situation would not love but i was like oh yeah you haven't updated your forms so i'm the father uh and then we also had to do second parent adoption i had to adopt my own kid you know a couple years after our kid was born which was in many ways like really painful because it's sort of like no i'm this kid's parent like why do i have to adopt them but we did it because of, you know, obviously because of Trump and, and just to sort of have all the protections. Um, and that's called, uh, I think it's called like belt and suspenders 
strategy. So a lot of a lot of families do that. So I wrote about those two things, and it was nice because I got a lot of support, or I got a lot of like connection with people who were in similar situations. You know, and I think um, it'll be interesting as my kid gets bigger to sort of see how, and as you know, how things shift socially. Um, right now, it's been very sweet in lots of ways. Like as Jordy likes to say, very norm core. You know, <laughs> like we live in this small college town, and like we do all these like super normal things and I'm really occupied with like really normal things like getting a childcare schedule in place and mowing the lawn and you know like going to the grocery store and trying to get this child to do certain like take out the garbage or whatever you know it's sort of like I, I think it's it's strange to sort of have come into this this life and it, it's strange also to have this book out that is about a very different time in my life and a very different time in queer culture at the same time that I am in this like really like very it feels like it's it's almost like huh that's an interesting book that somebody else wrote and here is this life which is very oh man it's so weird but it's great I mean I'm really it's I didn't know it was going to be so fun and great but it is contain multitudes yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, allow us to, to wrap up. Do you feel like as we've hopped around a little bit, do you feel that, like, are there any, like, um, is there anything, like, big we've missed that you'd want to comment on? Oh my God, no. I mean, I feel like I've just been rambling this whole time, but I, um, no, I mean, it's lovely to, to chat with you, and I don't, if there's anything I haven't talked about that you think I should talk about, I'm happy to do it, but I still sort of, yeah, I don't really. Well, may I ask you, um, you talked a bit earlier about your, your book, sort of, um, uh, like, sort of, like, being averse to, like, the burden of representation mm. around, um, uh, you know, like, queer trans novels or whatever. Uh, but I was wondering, maybe you could just, um, in closing, uh, comment on, like, something that you would, that you, the kind of impact you would like your work to have. Oh. And that might be your work. Oh, no, that's writing, easy, because... Be your work as a parent, or... Well, I mean, I think, like, the impact I would like my book to have would be for somebody to say, oh, man, okay, like, I I could write a book, you know? Like, oh, well, anybody could write a book. I feel like that, to me, I, I remember reading these certain books and and not in, in terms of, like, craft. I mean, just sort of, like, for me, it was, it was Michelle T. and Eileen Miles reading Michelle T.'s Passionate Mistakes an intricate corruption of one girl in America, which came out on Semiotext in probably 96, 97. I remember reading it. I remember buying it at the community bookstore um, on 7th Avenue in Park Slope and reading it, walking down the street and just like not being able to put it down and just being like, oh my God, okay, like if, if she can do this, I can do this. And not because I thought it was easy what she did, but because she was just laying everything bare. And I, and also class stuff, you know, I sort of felt like, wow, okay, here's somebody who's just, like, gonna be a writer, even if that's not something that they grew up thinking they could be. And I think reading Eileen Miles' stuff, I thought, I mean, I, I think, like, Eileen has been my teacher in this sort of, like, unofficial, like, life way. Like, every one of their poems, like, I feel like they're, they're, 
their poetics is like completely has transformed my writing and made me who I am as a writer. There's no question that I feel like everything I know about writing, I've really learned from reading Eileen's poems and Chip's novels. Um, but also reading Eileen's prose, I think I had this sort of sense of like, not only like, oh, you could write about that, but also I think with both of them sort of the feeling of like, oh, you could write about that. Um, you could write about these things you're not supposed to write about or if you've never seen anybody else write about. Um, they both actually grew up in town similar to the town I grew up in. Well, Michelle, especially the town Michelle grew up in is really, really similar to the town I grew up in. And these sort of like, like working class New England factory towns that people don't really associate. Like when you say Massachusetts or Connecticut, they have these ideas. And then when you grow up in a town like that, you're like, it's just, you don't think anybody's ever going to make art, you know? And then to see these people who made this stuff and they're queer and just like it, I, I would hope that somebody would read, you know, something I wrote and say like, oh, I could write, like anybody could write. And I think that that, like that was a gift that was given to me. And I feel like um, that would be my favorite thing. More, more writers and artists, filmmakers, whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for your time. This is really wonderful. Really. I would like to now spend the next period of time hearing about your yeah, life. You can, you but can interrogate me for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Excellent.